When I touch you, you move the cursor. This is Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it cannot be annihilated by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. Today is Friday, October 26, 2012. This is episode number 91 of Hypercritical. We would like to say thank you very, very much to our three sponsors, Shutterstock.com, MailChimp.com, and Hover.com. I'd also like to mention that bandwidth for this episode and all of the episodes here in this glorious month of October have been provided by Cashfly.com. These guys have the fastest CDN in the business. How do I know? Because we use them. And if you downloaded this show, you used them. Check them out at Cashfly.com and let them know that you heard about it here on 5x5. Hello, John Syracuse. How are you this fine Friday afternoon? Or morning, really? I'm just fine. Good. Sound good today. What'd you change? Nothing. Okay. Got a lot of stuff to talk about today, Dan. Let's hit it, man. Let's go. Woohoo! A little tiny bit of follow-up, and then we'll dive into what must be discussed. Okay. Last show, we talked about Microsoft Surface for a bit, and there was one point that I had in my notes that I somehow missed uh, when we were discussing the memory size of, you know, the Surface versus the potential iPad and stuff like that. Sure. And how the Surface uh, uh, started at 32, I believe. But anyway, um, the the salient point that I was missing is that someone interviewed, uh, I think it was actually on a, a Reddit, I am a, one of those interview things. Someone from the Surface team was interviewed there and they're asking uh, how big, like, the OS install is on the Surface. And apparently the Surface uses 12 gigs for the OS or something like that. Wow, really? <laughs> So on the 32 gig model, you know, <laughs> you got, you got nothing. You got 20, only 20, 20 left. Right. Yeah. So if, if you can imagine a 16 gig, if, if iOS took up that much room, a 16 gig iPad would really be a four gig iPad. Uh, so iOS seems to have a big advantage in OS size. And that actually should factor in because when you buy like one of these devices, 16 gig, 32 gig or whatever, you don't get all that space. You know, it's going to come pre-installed with apps and also pre-installed with the OS. But you assume that like, yeah, mostly it'll be free. Right. Uh, but in the case of Windows 8 on the Surface, uh, be aware that it may be a little bit bigger than you think. Uh, and the final bit here is from Jared Williams, who notes that the Microsoft Surface will only be sold online and at Microsoft stores, not in traditional retail stores like Best Buy. And that's news to me. Uh, that's interesting that they're not even bother selling it through a reseller. It, this could be a move to promote their own stores. It could be something to make uh, third-party tablet makers feel better. Oh, hey, we're not competing with you guys. You'll, you know, we'll just sell it in our own stores and like these little kiosks in the mall, but you know, we're not going to try to compete with you in the big box retailers. So I'm not sure what the strategy is there, but it's interesting. And that's all the follow-up. That's I it? One but, thing? You know, I didn't go through and do all my, right? I have a bunch more follow-up, but I figure we have so many things to talk about uh, on this show. I didn't want to overwhelm it with follow-up. Otherwise, the thing would go long. Because I have, I have follow-up on the F15 and all sorts of other stuff, but... Uh, no time for it today. Okay. So today we're going to talk about the Apple event that happened, was it yesterday, day before, Tuesday? It was on Tuesday. Yeah, the 23rd. The 23rd of October, 2012. Yeah, and there was a lot in this event, a lot more than many of us thought there would be. I don't know what order you want to 
discuss things in in my notes they're in the order that they were presented i like i like that i like that because i actually think some of them will have more to say about than than others and then if we go in the order that they went then people can follow along by watching and pause it i don't know if that's gonna happen but all right so we'll start with the uh new 13 inch macbook pro which was your uh, darling that you predicted for the the previous uh, event and didn't show, right. and this this time it showed up. Uh, were you surprised when you when it showed up, or you're like, oh, yep, see, I knew it was going to be there. Well, I mean, I'd heard I had heard the rumors leading up again to this one. I, I mean, what's interesting is for a while there, Apple was having product specific events. And they would have, and famously the iPhone, you know, they would have a specific product. They did it with the iPhone. They did it with the iPad. And I, it's interesting that they had so many different device announcements at this one. And what was also interesting was he, they even talked about, I don't want to get too far ahead of it, but they even talked about like the Mac mini, which really just received just a, a little bit of a speed bump and storage bump. And there was really nothing much to talk about, and yet they still announced it. So I don't know. To me, that that was a little interesting, but uh, I think they just had the 13-inch ready, so they announced it. Uh, so I was not really surprised, uh, but I, I think I felt like it was overdue. I felt like they wanted to announce it last time, and for some reason, maybe supply or whatever, but couldn't. Yeah, that, that tension between like those two kinds of events that it used to be like when they were at Macworld Expo and uh, in WWC in some respects, it's like, oh, they'll, there's going to be a smorgasbord of stuff here. It's not just going to be one thing. But then these special events, like, you're right, they started doing these things where it's like, this is going to be all about the whatever. And even if they have other stuff to announce, they'd be like, oh, we're not going to talk about it on stage. We'll silently bump it or maybe they'll give it one slide briefly. But this felt more like an old Macworld keynote where they just they had a whole bunch of stuff. And they sort of built to the one, the big one that they wanted to talk about. But the other things that came before were not insignificant. I mean, if you think about this announcement versus the WWDC keynote this year, Mm -hmm. they were similar in volume. Maybe there was even more and more important stuff in this one. uh, Hardware wise, anyway, not software. wise. That's also also why it felt like an old one, because the old ones used to be like all about uh, hardware, at least in the beginning when their software wasn't really uh, anything they wanted to brag about in the beginning of the Jobs 2 era before Mac OS X had uh, sort of settled in. So the 13-inch, I mean, it's what we expected. It's the it's like the 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro, but 13-inch, so it can be a little bit thinner. The screen is smaller. Uh, there are some disappointing aspects of it. Someone in the chat room has already complained about the fact that the 8 gigs RAM is the max that you can get on this thing, uh, which is really is kind of like, is that a Pro? That is that a MacBook Pro? You know, it seems like you should be able to jam. I didn't, I didn't, and double-checking this, like I'm going to, you know, configure your MacBook uh, Pro 13 inch uh, on the store, and unless I'm going to the wrong page, that let me see. Let me see if that's actually the case because I, I have trouble even believing this. No, I don't that's see a RAM the, option. No, yeah, I, I think pick, it's like a can, sealed. I've got this right. thing here, and uh, I'm looking at it now. There's a MacBook Pro with Retina display, and now that's when you go to MacBook Pro. Let's see what you can do if you buy now. If you oh, so buy you now, 13-inch. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, you can pick CPU, you can pick storage. 
and accessories, but nothing about RAM. And, it, you know, obviously it's soldered onto the board and all right. that other stuff like it is the 15-inch, but the 15-inch gave you a choice, 8 or 16. Right. The 13-inch here, it comes with 4 gigs of RAM uh, at the 2.5 gigahertz speed, and then at the 2.9 gigahertz, it, which is 14.99, it is uh, 8 gigs, and that's that's it. And I'm 4 just, gigs? No, you're looking at the right thing. Yeah, I'm looking at the right thing. 4, four gigs? Hang on. No, come on. Oh, hang on. I clicked the wrong one. You did. Eight, eight gigs on both of them. Yeah, you're right. right. I was looking at the non right now. Sorry. All right. Yeah, anyway, so yeah, 1699 $19.99 with Retina Display, eight gigs both. You can't configure. Yeah, that, and that is that is disappointing. Like, I'm, I'm happy that the, all the minimums are now eight, but I'm not happy that the maximum is eight on this thing. Uh, it's really thin. It's what, 0.75 inches, which is like 20% thinner than the old one. Right. Uh, the most interesting thing about it is it's really light, like 3.5 pounds. It lost a pound. Like it's starting to push down into, it's not into MacBook Air territory quite yet, but uh, it starts to change how that machine feels. Like we're all waiting around for a Retina MacBook Air. And as discussed on past shows, my theory uh, as to why they can't do that is because there's just not enough room in that skinny little package for a battery big enough to power a Retina display. Uh, so they'll, they'll get that sorted out eventually. But while while we wait... If you you know pump a little iron, this 13-inch MacBook Pro could be a reasonable proxy for a 13-inch MacBook Air. Uh, it's not super light and super skinny like the Air is, but it's still, I, I bet it crosses some threshold from feeling like you're carrying around a big brick to feeling like you're carrying around something that's pretty thin and light. Like even the 15-inch, now the 15-inch feels too much like a, uh, a lunch tray to uh, to make you feel like it's small. But this one, this looks like a really nice machine except for the RAM thing. Uh, yeah. USB 3 is now going everywhere on the Mac line. So this thing has, you know, it's got two Thunderbolt ports, USB 3, the dual mics, which they're also throwing everywhere on the line, I guess, for, for uh, Mountain Lion's dictation features. So they can do noise cancellation and stuff to make the, the speech better. Not that the microphones are super high quality and they're actually in kind of a weird spot on the side of the machine, but two mics is better than one. Uh, and HDMI out, you know, all, all the modern things that we expect. It amazes me kind of that the SD card slot keeps hanging on, you know? Like, they never put CF slots in their thing, so they just sort of <laughs> picked a winner. It's like, oh, SD. I don't... Is SD, like, the big, giant winner in the camera space? Like, who's using SD cards? People with cameras. I don't see a lot of people using them. Like, I see people using USB thumb drives as their, like, little solid-state storage they carry around. Uh, but I was under the impression, at least last time I was looking into this, that CF is still has some reasons for pro people to use it. And this is a MacBook Pro, but... But anyway, it is kind of surprising to me. It was surprising to me when SD cards slot, slots started to appear on Macs, and it's kind of surprising to me that they continue to be there uh, because Apple is so ruthless about removing ports that they don't want, like no FireWire or anything on this. Like FireWire is done. We've got Thunderbolt now. Uh, and USB 3. God, every time I look at these machines, I think about <laughs> the Mac Pro that you could buy, which does not have USB 3, does not have Thunderbolt. Uh, it's depressing. All right. Uh, the Retina display is exactly what you saw. This is double the old display, uh, 2560 by 1600. And I have to say, like, I've seen lots of 15-inch Retinas. Uh, a friend of mine at work had one, sat right next to me for a while, so I got to look at his. And I've seen a bunch of other ones, and that really is such a nice screen. Like, you, you've seen it yourself. Like you said, it's the only screen that you've used in, in years that doesn't actually give you eye strain, desktop, laptop, anything. Uh, and I am I really like that screen. Uh it, it has all the aspects of it that 
that I wish the desktop display had. Like when they went all glossy on everywhere, we all complained. Well, the Retina is has far less glare than the other ones. It doesn't have the glass over the top of it, and I don't know if it has an anti-glare coating. This one, I believe, does, but uh, it, there's less glare. Like even on the 15-inch, there's just less glare. There's no air gap between some glass thing covering the display. It really does look like the pixels are up on the surface. They said that about the, the iPhone 4 or 4S or whenever they laminated that thing, and I didn't really see it there, but I see it on the 15-inch uh, MacBook uh, Pro Retina, and I'm assuming I'll see it on the 13 as well. Uh, the downside to that is the durability issue is kind of scary. If you drop your keys on the screen of your old MacBook Pro and it scratches that glass, they can replace that front glass for you. Uh, but if you drop your keys on the screen of one of these Retina models, that screen, that glass is laminated to the screen, and if you want that scratch to go away, you got to pay for an entire new screen, which is not going to be cheap. Um, so that's that's the price you pay for having a much, much nicer looking screen. You got to be a little bit more careful with it. Uh, and the thing about these screens is that uh, if you use like one of those hacks, one of those resolution hacks to put it into sort of native 1x mode where one point is one pixel on a retina display, which Apple wisely does not allow you to do. But if you, but if you do that, everything becomes microscopic and you think, boy, now it's all blurry. I can't see anything. But if you lean really close to the screen or you get like a one of those jeweler loop things or whatever, you can see it's not that it's blurry, it's that your vision is blurry. If you go put your nose right at the screen, you can see, oh yeah, there they are, all the little fine details, crisply drawn in tiny pixels that are, you know, too small for the eye to see. It, it really is amazing. Um, and yeah, where is where is my desktop display? It's like this. Where where is it's my in, it's in it's in a secret lab somewhere deep in the bowels <sighs> of Apple. Yeah, Mac Pro. 2013, Tim Cook says, once again, not that there will be a new Mac Pro in 2013, but that people who are disappointed that there is no Mac Pro, Apple will have something for them in 2013. It could just could just be faster CPU. Could be the middle finger. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I patiently wait for 2013. Continue to wait. And so they show the little thing. Like, Here's the MacBook lineup now. Uh, they've got the Air, the Pro, and the Pro with Retina display. Like They lumped it into those three bins. The Airs and the Pros are all basically, you know, by implication, non-Retina. Because uh, they're still selling the 13-inch uh, non-Retina MacBook Pro and the 15-inch non-Retina MacBook Pro, I guess, for people who want optical drives or for people who can't afford the, the ones that have the uh, Retina display. But it is a, a pretty good spread of price. Like the Air started 1000 the MacBook Pros without Retina started 1200 and the with Retina started $1,700. Uh, and the visual identity is like there's black frames around the Pros, Retina and non-retina, like around the screen. And the airs still have like the aluminum color around the screen and a much thicker border around the airs. It kind of makes them look older and cheaper, you know. Uh they're getting kind of long in the tooth. But uh I I assume. But it's there, it, that is, I think, a very intentional, and I think that's the distinction. It's if it, if it's a retina display currently. If it's a retina display, it's gonna get the beautiful black border. And if it is the air, it's not. But the non-retina pros still have the blackboard yeah, too. It seems do. like black is like is like pro, pro. Or, I don't know, or it could be a transition. But we'll find out when the the retina airs come out. If they have suddenly have a black border around them, then that was just the new look they were going to, her and it took a while to transition. But we're, it's the thickness of the border that makes it look cheaper, kind of. John, were you surprised a little bit by the fact that the MacBook Pros non-retina are still there? Were you expecting them to be replaced? Because there's not much difference in price. There's only in in the case of the 13 inch, I think there's only maybe 150, 200 bucks difference in price. And I'm not saying that's 
not a lot of money to spend a difference on a computer, but do, do you think that the non-Retina MacBook Pros are selling well? Would you buy, if you were buying a laptop today and you decided it wasn't an Air, is there really much of a decision for you? Like, would could you see people buying uh, a 13-inch MacBook Pro without Retina? My impression right now is the non-retina pros are still around for the same reason the 17 inch was still around with that with the PC card slot for such a long time. Remember those years where oh, it was yeah. like, and if you still want a PC card slot, you're forced to get the seven. Like that battleship hung around for it seemed like a really long time, and we we just stopped paying attention to it. But I think there was a class of customer who wanted that machine, and Apple was giving them an extra year or two or whatever it was for them to phase out. And I feel like this is the same way, but in this case, it's with the optical drive. Like that's the only reason you would really buy those. Not not because they're cheaper like you know i, I think it's because of the optical drive because as you said if someone is buying a pro a couple hundred dollars like because they need it for their work a couple hundred dollars isn't a big deal and if you don't need it for your work well an air is probably a better machine for you because who cares if it has all this big fancy power and everything and, and the larger screen stuff like that so uh who's going to be still buying those it's like well it's for people who are both price conscious and still want the optical drive one one person who's like this is my mother who loves the optical drive and she has a current uh, 13 inch uh, or a pre-retina 13 inch MacBook Pro. And she uses the optical drive all the time. She rents audio books from the library and puts them into her drive there and she gets Netflix movies on disc and puts them in and watches them on her laptop uh, while my dad watches sports or cooking shows. And without that optical drive, it's you know, you've got a problem. Like I've told her they've been going away and she's like, well, I'm just going to keep using this one until they all go away. You know, and they're, they're slowly going away. So if, if she was in the market for a new one, she's not, her thing is working fine. But if she was, she would definitely buy the ones with the optical drive because they're a little bit cheaper and, you know, she doesn't want to spend too much money and they have the optical drive. So these, those pros still serve a purpose for some period of time to sort of transition the, uh, the people who really want an optical drive off it. Uh, and I think it does help them flesh out their the price points. Even if people end up bouncing to the lower or higher end and don't actually land in a little middle end, it's nice to have a range. You don't want to jump right from the airs to like a seventeen hundred dollar pro with Retina, right? So you're, um, get, you're getting one of these thirteen inch ones, right? I hate laptops. I don't like laptops. Uh, but it's yeah, that's a nice machine. Let's I, do I, our. Um, can we do our first sponsor before we continue? Yep, go for it. Shutterstock.com, 20 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, video clips. They have the best stuff. They have a really cool thing. When you go there, you want to put together a little package of images. Have you spent any time on the site, John? You can say no. Uh, I have not. You have not. Well, you're not right now creating anything uh, new that would require images or vectors or illustrations or video clips. But if you are, this could be an iOS app, could be a website. You could be wanting to make some swag for your... You're, you, you're going to run a booth over at the Macworld, right? Not me. You're not running the booth? No, no booth. All right. Well, if you are, you may want to get some artwork. You may want to have some things on display. This is the place to go. You've got a global image collection. They're adding 10,000 images a day from folks who are all over the whole world. You have truly international image library to choose from. You can download them in any size. You pay one price. You get the highest quality images for one price. They don't nickel and dime you. And they even have an iPad app that you can use to help collect and manage your light, your light box. As you're going through this thing, you're saying, oh, I want this one, I want this one, I want this one. You put them in your light box, you organize them, you create a package, and you buy it. You can just get one image if you want, or you can get a subscription. It's whatever you want. Your design shop, you always need stuff like this. Subscribe. It's cheaper. Or you just want one image because it's uh, coming up on Halloween, and you get a blog, and you want a cool Halloween uh, header. 
Go here. Check it out. Why? Because I'm giving you 30% off. Use the code DANSENTME10. Number 10. You'll get 30% off any package you put together once you find the images that you like. Do it all over at shutterstock.com. Dan sent me 10 is the code. Thanks very much to them for making uh, this show possible. Go check it out. You'll like it. All right. Please continue, sir. God, this is the day of construction trucks driving by my house. I don't know where they're going. But What's going on get, in your neighborhood? They want, they want to go somewhere. At least they're not stopping. The de-gentrification of your neighborhood has begun. It could be street cleaners. I haven't checked. Okay. But they're noisy. All right. Uh, Mac Mini. The Mac now, Mini. I'm a big fan of the Mac Mini, John. Let's play the, uh, this would never have happened if Steve Jobs was alive <laughs> game. Because that's such a fun game to play. It is a fun game. And in case, to be absolutely clear to the people listening to this, that game is ridiculous. I don't like, I have yet to read a single intelligent thing said in the context of this wouldn't have happened if Steve Jobs is alive. I don't not, not sure anything intelligent can be said in that context. But uh, I'm doing this as a joke. When Phil Schiller said, you knew there'd be something called Mini in this presentation, didn't you? <gasps> they never would have spoiled the, the surprise of some announcement later in a, in a presentation if Steve Jobs was alive. That is the perfect example of that phenomenon because I'm pretty sure Steve Jobs did exactly that same thing mm-hmm. when he was alive, which is sort of the pattern for all these stupid things. But anyway, that was cute. Um, so Mac mini, uh, they rev the Mac mini on, on like, I know we complain about the Mac pro with the Mac mini. If you were like a big Mac mini fan, I guess Mac mini Colo probably is, uh, it's like, when are we going to get a mini update? When Apple feels like it, like cool your jets, man. You know, the, the MacBook pros every year and like the, the laptop line every year, they're going to do something with the laptop line because those are their, their bread and butter. But the Mac mini, yeah, you know, uh, but so the thing with Mac Mini is like when it's at the end of its lifetime, you really don't want to buy one because when it gets revved, it's a big leap from the past one. And this is an impressive little machine. All right. So first, the USB 3, of course, four USB 3 slots. Firewire 800 still hanging on there. Yeah, kinda, which you need. weird. That's really good. Yeah, you got Thunderbolt port. The Mac Mini has a Thunderbolt port. The Mac Pro, not so much. HDMI, you know, with the acknowledgement of the people who want to use it attached to a TV. Really fast CPUs. I put a, a link in the show notes of showing the benchmarks of this thing and how depressingly it beats some of the older Mac Pros in some benchmarks. The Mac Mini beating the Mac, Mac Pros. I think it was like a 2009 Mac Pro. It is now faster than in some CPU benchmarks. Up to 16 gigs RAM. 13-inch Retina MacBook Pro can't have it, but the Mac Mini can. Uh, and, you know, one terabyte hard drive or 256 gig SSD. Uh, and an option for the Fusion Drive, which we'll discuss later. And th- these, these Minis... I've thought about getting a mini for just to attach to my TV for a while. The thing that keeps stopping is one, these are pretty expensive. Like the mini, I mean, I guess it's kind of stayed the same price, so it probably is going down, but it's not like you're getting a mini for 300 bucks. You know, once you get the mini you want, you're pushing up close to a thousand. Uh, so it's not, an, it's not an insignificant investment. And second is I'm still a little bit worried about fan noise. I don't want to have something always on attached to my TV in my TV room adding more fan I never hear the I've, I have a lot of Mac minis you never hear the fans in those I'd be happier if it had no fan like because I love the Apple TV yeah no but I, I don't think the fan maybe the jackals in the chat room can corroborate this or, or dispute it but I unless I'm doing something with flash I never hear the fan in that thing yeah I, I'll bet it's quiet but anyway I, I continue to to eye the Mac mini uh, warily maybe i can consider getting one to attach i just keep hoping that like newer apple tvs will come out with no fans that do everything that i would would be doing with the mac mini uh, by the way that's cute 
it's a nice little update. Thumbs up on that. Uh, the next do one. You have, do you have any of those? Any what minis? Yeah. No, no, I've always avoided them. What What if the update to the Mac Pro is that they get rid of the Mac Pro uh, and no, they have a mini that has just some kind of thing where you can like a Drobo style insert some drives and 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 PCI cards? I would be very upset with Tim. All right, if if you did that or on a first name basis, and I'd say, you know, Tim, you said in 2013 you'd have something uh, for the people who are disappointed that there's no Mac Pro. This is not it. And once again, to reiterate, the reason you can't have this fantasy scenario is because, at least for me, and I suspect for other people as well, is that the reason I want a Mac Pro is because I want the fastest available video card in there. And the fastest available video cards cannot run over Thunderbolt because Thunderbolt does not have enough bandwidth. Uh, it's equivalent to, like, what is it, four PCI Express lanes or something like that. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the top-end video cards use more PCI Express lanes than is available in the current version of Thunderbolt. So everything else aside... The you know possible expense of having external breakout boxes and stuff like that, but it's just not it's just not possible with current technology to get the machine that I want. And of course, the other people who want Mac Pros, uh, you know, they want to put in big full length PCI Express cards. Again, they probably need more lanes. Even if you had a breakout box, it couldn't you know. And it's just less convenient to have this big spaghetti of boxes. You know, we don't want a little Mac Mini and then connect to uh, you know a Thunderbolt drive chassis where you can put four hard drives and then connected to another chassis where you can put two PCI uh, cards for your video capture. You end up with this big spaghetti of boxes connected with wires. And you're like, oh, can you just package that in one really nice box and give it to me? Now, I fully expect the new Mac Pro, you know, the optical drives go away. Uh, the case gets smaller. Uh, SSDs feature prominently in the pre-installed hardware. Again, we'll get to the Fusion drive in a little bit. That's what I expect out of a new Mac Pro replacement. And by the way, give me a Retina display and some crazy video card that can actually drive it over some kind of bus. I'd be like, whatever you got to do, make it happen, right? That's what we're all signed up for for 2013. So um, fingers crossed. Uh, but for now, on the desktop realm, we've got the new iMac. Which yes. Was, they said was like the... People consider the iMac the flagship of the Mac line. It's like, uh, twisting you the knife. You were just rolling over in your grave when they said that. I mean, it is like psychologically, like if you if you ask the general public name a Mac, they're like, the iMac? Is that a Mac? Like that'll come up as they know the name. Like, But, you know, the flagship, does that mean it's It is a best? flagship. Well, wait a minute. Hold on. Hang on. Ever since the day the iMac came out, I would argue... That that has been their flagship Mac. That iMac, the iMac has always, ever since that first day, that has been the Mac. And then if you had asked Steve Jobs, and today if you had asked Tim Cook, and if you'd asked most folks on the street, if you if you said, imagine in your mind a Mac, what do you think of? They're going to think of an iMac. Now you might not think of the iMac, but I think gonna- most most people still say a Mac. They're probably not going to think of of a laptop. I think they're thinking of a laptop at this point. This is what I yeah, you know what you may, you may have you may have a good point there, uh, but I I bet you that there's m- more people on the street who don't even know that Apple makes a tower anymore. Oh yeah, I'm sure that's certain. You know, but like it uh, it depends on what you definitely. Hey, wait a minute. Is, where where are like... the where are the towers in the uh, in the Apple Store? And I so, think they're still there. Are they still there? Because I remember you could walk into the Apple Store and fifty percent of what you saw were the towers sitting up on top of the thing with the cinema displays next to them, and now. It's all iPads, uh, iPhones, and laptops, and I wonder if you if if there's more than a couple of uh, the towers in there. Jackals, any you've been to a uh, I've been chat there recently. Room, I mean, to Apple Store recently. You've been in there recently. I'd be shocked if there was more than two. I can only yeah. remember saying. I think there might be one. I'd be surprised well, if there's two. 
Yeah, there's there's one. There's definitely one because I saw it last time I was there, which was like a week ago, right? And if there's two, they're right next to each other. I think there used to be two, and I think now there's probably just one. And then the thing next to it is a TV with a mini connected to it, or a TV with an Apple TV connected to it or something. But there's still one. I mean, I don't care what's in the Apple Store. I'm not buying from the Apple Store. I just you know what I want. They know what I want. Yeah. But anyway, in the meantime, iMac. Um, they had that cool iMac Evolution picture where they showed the the seven generations of iMacs all lined up. Yeah. Uh, and that was that it was good for getting across the message they wanted because you know there's the CRT ones and it's like you know what can you do CRT and then there was the the uh, transitional form uh, where it was like we didn't want to shove all the guts in the back of the display because that makes it all fat right, the and lamp, ugly. The so, lampshade style. Yeah. Yes. That, did you have a lampshade? Uh, I did not. My I had one and I should have kept it. I don't know why I didn't keep that thing. Yeah, that was a great machine. I remember when when that uh, design came out and I saw it in person. I'm like, I can't believe you can buy this computer for the amount of money they were selling it for because it looked so expensive. Like that ridiculous arm thing and the way it worked and looked and it just looked like an incredibly expensive product. Right. Like it looked like, oh, this is, you know, some crazy Bang & Olufsen thing and I can't afford something <laughs> this nice. And it was like 1200 bucks or whatever it was. I could not believe that you could get it for that price. Uh, and so they were like, let's let's let each element be true to itself. So the, we don't want to shove all the guts in the back of the monitor because that's, you know, the guts, they should be squatted and low to the ground. And so it had the little dome thing. It was like, a, it was matte finish. That's one of the only times I can remember Apple doing it intentionally like a very matte finish thing. Matte finish white. Very strange. Uh, and then the monitor lets it float in the air. Its essence is that it's thin and free, you know. And so then they evolved it in the very next revision after the lampshades uh, didn't do as well as they had hoped they would do. Uh, they said, you know what, we have the technology now to shove the guts in the back of the monitor because then it's not that thick. So they shoved the guts in the back of the monitor and it was thicker than the old floating monitor on, on the lampshade. Uh, but they got progressively thinner. They had that little one. I like the the, uh, the little, black, little black dress model or, uh, you know, the, the car in black where they changed the back of the iMac to black and in profile it's slimming because right. all you see is the silver and then the black disappears, right? Uh, Optical illusions. To, it's like yeah, when then, you hold your fingers up in front of your eye and you make a really, really tiny little pinhole and it improves your vision. That's not an optical illusion, but yes, that, that's something you can do. <laughs> yeah, all right. So then they, they made the back back to aluminum and it's pretty thin on the current models. All right, so then they said, now let's show you the new iMac. And they, they put up a slide that did this very careful reveal of the edge of the iMac coming up on the, the video on the slide. And it was super duper thin and they showed the picture of it, which is also from that strange, awkward kind of angle. Uh, showing, look at this thin edge. It's five millimeters thin. Uh, and Phil was very excited about that and kept showing it. Uh, in the show notes, I have a link to an image from an Ars Technica article, which I also linked, that is a picture taken by the Ars guys when they are at the uh, Apple sort of uh, meet and greet, play with the hardware type thing. And it is not from that very careful angle chosen to show only the thin edge and not the back uh and you can see the uh the back end of this thing i, I tweeted the thing earlier it's like does this aluminum back make me look fat because from, <laughs> from many angles it looks like there's some sort of bulge or tumor or you know there's junk in the trunk in the back of that imac and the the thing about that thin edge is like what does that buy you it's not a laptop do do i really care how thin the edge of the iMac is if I have to see this big lumpen thing from any angle where I happen to see the back. Now, 
Phil's right. He brought up the picture of the old one. It's like, look, here's the old one. Doesn't it look humongous and thick and, and ridiculous? Once you see the new one, and it's true, it does. You look at it from the side, you're like, oh my, it starts to look like the old white iMac with everything on the back of the monitor. You're like, man, that thing just looks like a giant battleship now compared to this new one. But at a certain point, like I wouldn't want it to continue to compromise the uh, the insides of this thing just to get the this uh, the thin edge. Because like I again, beyond aesthetics, I just don't see what that buys you. It's it's purely sort of it's a vanity feature. It's purely uh, doesn't let look cool and thin. Now, if the whole thing was that thin, like then we're getting somewhere. Like because then it's like oh that's that's getting crazy. It really is completely elemental. Uh, but speaking of the elemental stuff, the next part of this, which was actually addressed on the thing, is the, is the chin. Lots of people are talking about this, and, and Apple's like, we love the chin. The question is, why the hell does the iMac have a chin at all? Yeah. There's no, there's no physical reason. Like, you could put all the guts in the back of it. There's nothing in the chin. Like, the chin is so thin at this point. There's nothing of significance in there. You could put everything that's in an iMac completely behind the screen, and it would look like a really cool display. Yeah. Do you think that's why they do it, so it does not look like a display, so that this is the distinction between the iMac and a display? Yeah, and it's kind of weird to me that they insist on that distinction because for their iOS devices, they don't do that. They don't say, we've got to have an Apple somewhere on the front of this device, right? They say, like, the whole front is just like, it's you, all you see is the screen, and if they could, you know, if they only put edges on there for you to grip. And, of course, you've got the home button, but there's no place, like, dedicated to branding. And the chin is dedicated to branding. It's dedicated to differentiation and branding. Oh, you're not just looking at a monitor. This is an entire Apple computer. See the Apple logo right in the middle there? It's an Apple computer. The chin keeps getting smaller, thinner, less prominent. All oh, that's all good things, but uh, maybe they feel like if they take that away, there's not enough left to brand the thing as an Apple computer. Whereas they think iOS and the devices themselves are iconic enough, it might just start to look like a monitor. Uh, but anyway, they did emphasize that the back panel and the chin are now like fused together with this. What is it? Friction stir welding? Some crazy thing to basically make that one piece, which leads me to believe, I haven't seen the iFixit teardown yet, or actually they're not out yet, so they can't do one, but it leads me to believe that you've got to suction cup the glass uh, display part off, and that's how you get it, all the insides. Like, the back doesn't come off, the front comes off. Uh, and it's not glass, it's fused to the uh, right. display. So the display comes out, and then you get it all the guts of the thing. Uh, now, these things are, though, uh, to some degree... A little bit less. Well, the the larger, the twenty seven inch one, can go up to thirty two gigs, which is the first time in the history of the iMac. Unlike the uh, the disappointing to you thirteen inch MacBook Pro, which can be only uh, Retina, which can be only eight, this can go up to thirty two gigs in a supported Apple configuration. And apparently, this is the first time that Apple has supported such a configuration. That you could have gone with like third party RAM and upgraded your iMac to 32 gigs, but it's not supported by Apple. Now it's fully sanctioned. Yeah, I think that's just keeping pace with like current RAM requirements. Like it is ridiculous for any desktop machine to max out at 16, especially like the top of the line. Because once you get on the top of the line iMac, that's starting to get pretty expensive. Uh, this has led some people to say, see, like the, the, the thing that replaces the Mac Pro for you is just going to be a really, really fancy uh, iMac. I hope that's not the case because I don't think there's room in the back of a display to put uh, an extremely high-powered full-length video card. Uh, and, you know, these iMacs, they're laptops with a giant screen attached. Exactly. Like they're, they're using laptop motherboards, laptop CPUs, laptop GPUs for the most part, except for maybe like the very top-end one is probably too hot to put in any laptop except for some crazy Alienware gaming thing. Uh, but they're not, it's not desktop 
caliber stuff in there. And it's certainly not the crazy server caliber stuff that's in the Mac Pros, you know, ECC RAM and uh, yeah, server uh, CPUs and all that stuff. Um, still a 21.5 inch and the 27 inch. I think that the resolutions are the same 2560 by 1440 uh, for the 27 inch. The 13 inch MacBook Pro Retina has more pixels than the biggest iMac you can buy. Again, you know, Retina iMacs 2013, we're still waiting. We were talking about that a couple of shows ago. I didn't think they would be here this year. It looks like they won't be. Not really surprising. The 27 inch is still a nice monitor, even when it's not Retina, but we're all just waiting, right? Uh, the anti reflective coating, they, this is the one they emphasize the anti reflective coating on with the plasma deposition. I, I like that. I like the lamination. I like the anti reflective coating. This, this iMac really is. The iMac really has been getting better and better. The, you know, ignoring the bulge and the thinness and the silliness. You sit in front of this thing, you just see a big display in front of you. It's all one piece. It's light. Uh, yes, it's a laptop slapped to the back of a monitor, but it's a really nice laptop slapped to the back of a really nice monitor. Uh, I think I'll have to see it in person to decide how much the bulge bothers me aesthetically. Uh, how often are you going to be looking at the bulge? It depends. If you're in an office, you know, if you see people sitting around in the office, mm. if people walking around the office, they see the backs of these machines a lot. I mean, Apple makes the backs of them very nicely. Like I have a, I have a 24 inch uh, Apple LED display at work and most people just see the back of it and the back of it looks nice. Uh, I think the back of this straight on will look nice, but from the angle, it starts to look lumpen. I'll have to see one in person. I don't know. I mean, it, it just bothers me because I'm, I worry that if you're going to make compromises for aesthetics, make sure the aesthetics are good, Right. And I'm not sure they're compromising much for the aesthetics, but I worry that's the trend. Like that someday they're going to say, let the next one, let's make it like the whole thing five millimeters thick. Oh, well, to do that, we have to make, you know, these silly compromises. Yeah, I, I don't know. And at this point also, I feel like the, the leg that holds it up, like, can we just shove the internals into the five millimeter thick leg that holds it up? And like, <laughs> what is that leg doing there? It seems like wasted space. Can we get this, this uh, screen to levitate? <laughs> Like, they're really trying to <laughs> boil these things down to the most essential. Like, even the leg, they tapered the front of the leg. Like, I'm I'm sitting in front of a 23-inch Apple Cinema display now, and the front of its little foot, the little aluminum foot, is not tapered. It's just as thick with the front edge as it is throughout the entire thing. And they several years ago, they tapered them all. They tapered the, the iMacs and all the monitors and stuff like that because they're just like, how can we reduce this to be even less than there is? So that's their mission, and they continue to execute on it. Uh, the dual mics appear on this one. You got the... USB 3, two Thunderbolt, gig Ethernet, SD card, still there, still rocking the SD card. Of course, no optical. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't say, oh, they had to get rid of the optical because they made it so thin. No, they're getting rid of the optical no matter what. Don't, don't kid yourself. Uh, and <laughs> there was it. For those of you who are stuck in the past, this is quoting Phil Schiller. Yes, you can get an optical drive. <laughs> so no pussyfooting around that. If you're stuck in the past, you can pay Apple $79 for a, $15 drive mechanism in an aluminum case. Uh, Got to love the margins on that one. That's USB. Uh, your super drive. But, I mean, with the desktop, I think that's reasonable. Like, that's what I said to my mother. Like, you know, they're getting rid of all the optical drives, so this is probably going to be your last machine with an optical drive. I said, you know, they sell an external one. She's like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Because then if you have a laptop, she, like, uses it on a pillow on her lap on the couch in front of the TV. You can't have this thing dangling off of it off to the side. It's just silly. But with a desktop, if you really need an optical drive... You don't have to get the Apple one for 80 bucks. Like, find another one. I'm sure you can get something that works. but Or just get the Apple one for 80 bucks because it looks nice and matches the machine. But that is reasonable. You just put it down next to the machine. There's nothing else on your desk. Like, this is just what looks like the monitor there. Wireless mouse and keyboard. It's a very clean environment, even though I hate that wireless keyboard because of the half-size arrow keys, lack of home and end, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but I think well, And, you know, you're, you're, stuck, you're stuck with a keyboard. You can't possibly replace it. 
Yeah, what I'm, I like what I'm saying is I wish they had a full the Apple you know aluminum keyboard the full size one. Yeah, just make a wireless version of that. That's like, exactly you know they used to have that. Uh, yeah, that's right. The when they were white and plastic or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. you didn't. Do you like those as much as aluminum? No, I, I, I never liked those keyboards. In fact, my Mac Pro came, whatever keyboard my Mac Pro came with, my keyboard and mouse I didn't have not used for I think any of my tower macintoshes that look like cheese graters i always just leave them in the box and i use my own keyboard and mouse uh, maybe maybe this one i guess the aluminum keyboard i'm using now must have come with this mac pro but i never use those white ones and yeah not not what i like but i think most people like the little tiny wireless keyboard with the half size arrow keys maybe they miss home and end if they're a pc user and or maybe they just figure out the fn key combinations which i also hate uh but anyway, I think it's a reasonable default, and I believe you can still choose give me a wired full-size keyboard. That's the thing. When you, if you have a friend buying an iMac and you know they're not going to like that dinky little keyboard, don't forget when you order it from online, change the option for the keyboard. But people don't think to do, and they end up with this keyboard and they have to buy a second one. They feel sad. All right, but the most interesting feature of, this, of the iMac, which maybe you want to do a sponsor before we talk about, is the Fusion Drive. The Fusion Drive. I was hoping you would talk about the Fusion Drive. Uh, and our next sponsor is Hover.com, Simplified Domain Management. John, this is your kind of domain name registrar. This is your kind of thing. It's clean. Just a simple white page. It's got a search box. You enter in the domain name that you want. You enter in a phrase. You enter in a few keywords. It will, it will tell you if the domain name you want is available. It'll make suggestions based on the keywords or other domains. And it's, it's all artificial intelligence stuff. They've got robots. They've got all of that behind the scenes that will help you come up with it. You find the domain name you want. You just click the little plus box and you check out. You register. You're done. It's not going to try and sign you up for a whole bunch of different things you don't want. Now, they'll sometimes send out an announcement. And you just uncheck the box in your settings when you're done. Uh, you don't never see that again. Somebody emailed me. Well, how come they sent me an email? Well... Once in a while, they'll give you an update. I like the updates. Some people don't. Turn them off. But that's not the point. The point is, this is the simplest, most straightforward way to register a domain ever. I love these guys. I use them constantly. I have a little domain problem. I don't think it's as bad as Merlin's. But I, I do register a, a bunch of domains all the time. And they make it simple. Free who is protection. They have this amazing uh, domain name transfer valet service so that if you're transferring from another registrar, you keep the time you already have over at the other registrar when you transfer, which is nice. And when you're done with that transfer, uh, you get the whole new year or whatever that you signed up for, and they'll handle the whole process for you seamlessly. Highly recommend these guys. You get it, you know, they have all the .com, .net, .org, all that stuff, and they also have a whole bunch of the other TLDs as well. Of course, my favorite's the .tv. You can go to hover.com slash Dan sent me, and you'll get 10% off your order, whether it's for the email hosting, just regular domain name registration, transfer, anything, you name it. Hover.com slash Dan sent me or just enter Dan sent me and you'll get 10% off. Thanks very much to Hover.com. Go check them out. All right, let's talk about Fusion. Oh, I, I sent you Fusion. a thing. Oh, you I want, sent you yeah. a thing before the show. Do you I'm ready, ready. I got it ready. All right, so I'll get a little entry here. So on Hypercritical episode 17, mysteriously titled Intruding Gooseneck, this was from May of 2011. Uh, we talked a lot about storage and hard drives versus SSDs, and we had this whole thing about SSD reliability. And uh, at one point in the show, we were discussing how we, you can like manually set up storage to divvy it up uh, between 
uh, whether you want to put everything, put just like your iPhoto library on a big disk or put the OS on an SSD and stuff like that. And so here's what I had to say at some point during that conversation. What you would want, I mean, if you had to just describe the ideal situation, what you want is, look, I want to install these two things. I can get lots of storage cheaply on a spinning disk and I can get lots of fast storage or, you know, less fast storage on an SSD. So I want to stick both these things into my computer because I feel like, you know, it's economically feasible. And what I want to happen is to the com- for the computer to put the things that I frequently use on the SSD and the things that I less frequently use on the other drive. And I don't want things to be spread across both of them. I, I want it to just manage my storage in a way that makes my- the overall, the net effect is that my machine feels faster than it would if it just had a spinning drive, but it has the same amount of storage or more than it would if it, if it had an SSD. Yeah. So in that clip, I described my ideal scenario and what Apple has shipped today or is going to ship when when these fusion drive iMacs are uh, available is pretty much what i described from you know i didn't talk about specific implementation but from a practical perspective what you want is that solution that people who know how to use symlinks and uh are you know computer nerdy can already make for themselves like they'll get a mac that has an ssd and attach a, a spinning hard disk to it and they'll figure out what do i want on the ssd what do i want on the hard drive, and I'll use symlinks to make it look like one volume. And that's kind of annoying to do, and you got to be careful that you don't anger any programs that really don't expect those symlinks to be there. One of the common scenarios is if you like update a program that has some symlinks internally inside it or in its data files, that when you upgrade it, it overwrites your symlink with a new folder and it loses the connection. And there's all sorts of nuances and details that are specific to the applications whose guts you're symlinking uh, that you have to be aware of. And it's definitely a nerd endeavor. Uh, and even then, even if you're willing to put in the time and energy to do that type of setup, which historically I have not been uh, willing to do, because it's just too much of a hassle for me. Even if you do all that, it's still kind of like you're at the mercy of your own decisions. Uh, and so if you continually use something off the spinning disk, it's like, oh, I wish this was on the SSD. But now, you know, you just use it week after week. And you're like, oh, I got to go. I got to remember to get set up the symlink so that's not there anymore. But oh, my SSD is getting full. So maybe I have to move something else that I don't use that often. It's just a humongous hassle. You want the, the operating system to do this for you. Uh, and that is the promise of Fusion Drive. Uh, you can order an iMac and a Mac Mini. And it will come with a 128 gig SSD, like one of those little stick SSDs that are in uh, the same connector they use in the Airs and the other laptops and stuff like that. Uh, Not like a a 2.5 inch SSD kind of drive replacement thing. And also a one terabyte or three terabyte regular spinning hard drive. And the operating system will make them look like one disk to you. And it will move your frequently used stuff onto the SSD. When it comes out of the box, everything is on the SSD. So you're starting off with like that first that first launch experience is going to be really, really fast. Because everything is going out of the SSD. You might as well, it's as if you bought just a plain SSD iMac. Um, and then as you use your other software, if you don't use some application that's on the SSD, it will be migrated back to the spinning disk. And if you do install some new software and constantly use it, that will be migrated to the SSD. And you don't have to do this, and you don't have to say, oh, I've decided that this always has to be there, and that always has to be in another place. The, the operating system will just note what you do and and you know keep a certain amount of available free space and not overflow the SSD and just shuffle stuff around. Uh, and I think that's a really great experience uh, in terms of performance and what you get for your money. Because... Like we're all talking about this in past shows. We're all just waiting for, you know, an affordable one or two terabyte SSD. Like that would hold all my stuff. But uh, our stuff keeps growing. And even though the price of SSDs keep coming down, we're just it's taking a long time for them to match up. And, the, and by the way, the size of hard drives keeps going up and the price keeps going down on hard drives as well. So 
it's like, well, maybe it's, maybe it's just never going to turn that corner or it's not never, but you know, maybe that turning that corner is going to take longer than we thought. So let's do something in the interim to have some sort of hybrid solution. Uh, this is definitely looks like a feature that you would expect to wait for a major operating system update. But the fact that it's being released now makes me think that they wanted it to be ready for mountain line. And it just wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and the, the evidence in this direction is that the WWDC session on file systems. I think I told this story before when uh, I, I was late coming into it uh, as I was coming from lunch or whatever. And Everyone told me, oh, in the beginning of this thing, they said something. They 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 said they had something that they wish they could talk about that, that they couldn't, and then they did the rest of the presentation. And I went back and watched the WWC video, and they do this little tease in the beginning, like, oh, you know, so the file system, uh, there's some new stuff that we can't really tell you about, but here's like a review of the stuff we talked about last year. And presumably, this was the stuff that they couldn't talk about. And that makes me think, like, th those guys, like, really wished that they had it ready for Mountain Lion, because then they could have talked about it at WWC, but... And by the time WC rolled around, they said, you're not going to make it. You're going to get pushed off. Like, oh, do we got to wait for 10.9? No, you don't. We'll, we'll do, do a mid-year, a major OS feature and a mid-year OS update uh, tied to a single machine or two machines in this case. So that is pretty weird and unprecedented, but it just shows that Apple, uh, if it's important enough, Apple will not hold its uh, features for a major OS revision to say, you know what? Forget it. We're just we're, we're shipping the iMac. The iMac's coming out. We want it to have Fusion Drive. Same thing with the Mac Mini. Let's just ship it with presumably 10.8.3 or whatever they're going to... Uh, although 10.8.2 has some support for it uh, baked into it already. Uh, now, the question on everyone's mind is, all right, so that's the high-level overview of how this works, and that's the experience the user gets fine, but how does this actually work internally? Uh, there have been lots of other solutions that try to combine cheap, big-capacity spinning storage with much more expensive, smaller-capacity solid state storage to give you sort of a hybrid solution. Uh, one of the early ones is the these hybrid hard drives. It would be like, like a regular spinning hard drive. It looks just like a regular spinning hard drive, but on the little circuit board that's attached to the top of the hard drive, there is some amount of uh, uh, flash. flash yeah. Yeah, not, not a lot. Like the one, the one I've heard a lot about and read reviews of back in the day was the Seagate Momentus XT. Comes with four gigs of flash uh, on, on the thing. There's a review I linked in the show notes from an Antech from 2010. That's when this drive came out, or at least when it was reviewed. And on this drive, the, the flash memory, the little SSD on, on the circuit board, acts like a read cache. So anytime you read some information, it goes in that read cache. And if you read it again, it doesn't have to go back to the spinning disk. It's already in that little cache there. Uh, and it's a persistent cache. So like if you turn the drive off and turn, it's not like just like a RAM cache because all drives have some sort of RAM buffer that's like, you know, 16 megabytes, 13 megabytes. This is a four gig SSD that will hold your most recent reads. Uh, but writes avoided that SSD entirely. If you wrote, it just went directly to the spinning disk. It did not write into the, the uh, flash memory. So your writes were just as slow as they would be on a spinning disk, but your reads for the stuff that you read often, in theory, would be faster. Uh, I was kind of surprised when I read the Zanantech review because the original reviews I had read from back in 2010 were like, yeah, like, it's all right, but it's not like if you really want good performance, get an actual SSD and it's kind of expensive and like it didn't seem like a good compromise. Like four gigs isn't that much and you kind of have to do stuff with it, sort of prime the pump. And uh, there are times when you can knock out the contents of that four gig cache if you're not careful or if your OS isn't savvy or the firmware isn't good where you can just read some big file. Like they do, they do things to try to make it not uh, have these bad conditions, but 
it's a it's a dedicated piece of hardware that like as far as your computer is concerned it just looks like a hard drive that has weird performance characteristics but there's no operating system involvement in it so there's only so much it can do and you're sort of at the whims of the firmware to be intelligent about uh managing that little four gigs of nand uh, flash on the thing uh <laughs> something i read in an tech review that i wasn't aware of is that if you defrag your hard disk uh it, that resets all of the the uh, knowledge about what should be in the, the flash memory, which kind of makes some sense because it's probably done at a hardware level of like which you know uh, logical addresses are cached on the cache and which are not. And if you fiddle with all those logical addresses, since writes don't go through the flash memory, now you're screwed with their cache and it resets things. But but anyway, I I never liked that. I looked into those when they were available, and I thought this is not a good compromise for me in terms of price versus performance. Uh, the next thing that came along, this was in. Uh, May of 2011 is that Intel's chipset. Uh, I don't keep up with Intel chipsets, but for, for the PC world, if you're into the, you know building your motherboards or worrying about what motherboard your thing has, Intel's Z68 chipset included something called Smart Response Technologies (SRT), which does not stand for Street Racing Technology for the car fans out there. Uh, and again, I link to the Anantech uh, review of this, and this is unlike Seagate's thing because. Both reads and writes go through uh, the the SRT system. SRT system would let you hook up like a, a an actual SSD and an actual hard drive, and it would try to like use them both to make your thing faster. So writes would go through there, and so would reads. Uh, but this was more of like a, a cache rather than uh, what Fusion is apparently doing. Uh, so it had two different modes. One of the modes was it would behave like a write through cache, where every time you write. You have to write to the SSD and you have to write to the hard drive, the spinning disk, before, you, before you're done. So that would make your writes all exactly as slow as your hard drive because that's going to be the gating factor. Uh, but it would mean that every time you did a write, if you did a subsequent read, you could read that out of the SSD because it was put there when it was written. Uh, and what is the other mode? The other mode is like a write, write back thing where it will do the writes to the SSD and then eventually those writes will go onto the spinning disk. Uh, and that's slightly more dangerous because what if you do a write to the SSD and then uh, something happens before it gets written back to the disk, uh, then, you know, you, you've lost that data because if the SSD is dead or something like that. Um, in all of these scenarios described so far, the size of the storage you have is equal to the size of the spinning disk. So in the SRT thing, since it's just used as a cache, if you have a one terabyte hard drive and then like, a you know, a SRT actually only lets you use 64 gigs of some SSD or something. Uh, you have a one terabyte of storage. It just uses 64 gigs of your SSD as cache, up to 64 gigs. So if you have a much bigger SSD, you can divide your SSD. 64 gigs is used for caching for your spinning disk, and the rest of the SSD is used just as plain old SSD that shows up as a different volume. Uh, and that's the maximum you can use there. But it doesn't increase the size of your thing because any data that's on the SSD, in theory, with, with the write-back mode, you know, eventually, but in the other mode always, will be on your spinning disk. Your spinning disk is where your data is, and this is just a performance enhancement, and in no time uh, do you need this SSD for your system to work, provided every write that's on it has been written out to the, the spinning disk. Now, the Fusion Drive one is like what it says, Fusion, combination of the two things. If you get a Fusion Drive and you get a 128 gig SSD plus a one terabyte hard drive, your total volume size is 1.2 terabytes. It It's the union of all that storage. The stuff that's on the SSD is not on the spinning disk. And the stuff that's on the spinning disk is not on the SSD. Plus or minus any ferrying in between or whatever. Right. Uh, and that is a different scenario than both of these. Uh, the 
Anatech was the only one to get, or the first one to get any kind of details out of this because like Apple didn't really reveal any details. There weren't any white papers up, but they talked to the people in the press room afterwards and he found enough people to give them some uh, information uh, about the thing. Uh, The most interesting technical detail I got is that there's a four gigabyte write buffer on the SSD so that anytime anything is written to the, the fusion drive, the union of these two things, it's written into that write buffer. Uh, which means that your writes are really fast, right? And eventually those writes to that buffer get either spilled over onto the spinning disk or kept on the SSD according to whatever policy that the thing is using to decide what stays on the SSD and what doesn't. Uh, so this has the advantage of that write-back mode of SRT where your writes aren't gated by the speed of the spinning disk. You can write really, really quickly because all your writes just go to the SSD. That data may eventually end up on the spinning disk due to whatever policy they use, uh, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And of course, the reads, uh, if you're reading something that's on the SSD, you get fast SSD read speeds. If you're reading something that's on the spinning disk, you get the speed of the spinning disk. Uh, so many people speculated that all Apple is doing is using the Z68 chipset and and uh, and using SRT. And I don't think that's the case. It doesn't make any sense to me that they would do that. In fact, Apple has a history of using chipsets from Intel uh, and you know its own... You know, integrated circuits on its own motherboards that it had made in the past, and it simply does not use all the features of them. Like, there'll be some sort of, you know, SATA RAID support in some controller chip on some Apple motherboard, but that's not, you can't use that. That's not exposed. Maybe even the pins aren't even connected. Like, you know, Dolby Digital 5.1 sound is embedded in some chip that they happen to use as part of some Intel chipset, and they don't use it, right? So even if Apple used chipsets that had this SRT stuff, uh, I don't. Th- I, I think it would be perfectly within Apple's usual patterns to just not use it. Like they're doing their own thing here. So this is not SRT. Uh, the description of how it behaves is different than how SRT behaves. Even in the write back mode, it's different. This is the union of two drives. Um, what are the details are there on this from the Intech article? Um, you have a soundbite for this one. I do not have a soundbite for this one. Uh, he asked them if there was any any user interface for managing the Fusion Drive within the operating system, and they said no. no. Uh, I'm assuming eventually the the command line tools that deal with this type of stuff will be there, uh, but no GUI for it. Uh, the next bit of information I saw that had real sourcing was from L-G-E-R-B-A-R-G. It's a username and a commenter on, on an Ars Technica <laughs> article. I've linked to the I've linked to the Ars Technica article as well that has a description of uh, Fusion Drive with some more details. And this is this is Ars Technica's great promoted comments feature. Like right. Ars Technica has some really good commenters, people who really know what they're talking about. But to see their stuff, you'd have to like wade through a seven-page comment thread and like find the one guy that's good. And now that the the editors and authors at Ars Technica have the ability to say. Oh, that's a great comment. I'm promoting that. So right underneath an Ars Technica story, there'll be a little box that calls out the one or two comments that actually are worth reading. You know, they actually are good. Uh, and so this is a, he gives some confirmation of, uh, I think, what everyone suspected. Uh, he says, I am 100% certain this is HFS Plus sitting on top of core storage based on comments made to me by certain former coworkers who are still at Apple. Hmm. Yeah, I think he used to work at Apple. All right, so core storage. Did I put a link to that in the show notes? I should. Core storage is Apple's uh, logical volume manager kind of thing. It was introduced in Lion. They used it to do File Vault 2, which is their file, uh, their whole disk encryption thing. Uh, and it's sort of a layer uh, 
I don't know say on he just says HFS plus sitting on top of core storage. I would say core storage hiding HFS plus behind the scenes. But the bottom line is this is not a new file system. Uh, core storage, I think I talked about in the line review. If you read the man pages back in line, you'd see, oh, I can make a union volume out of like I can I can take one disk and another disk and make them look like a single disk that is the equivalent of both of the things. That sounds like RAID zero, but it would be like an entirely software-based thing. It's it's logical volume management. Logical volume management is something from the Unix world from you know decades ago where you could take where you could address storage not as the physical spinning drives, but as logical entities that may contain, like the logical physical thing was separated. You may have four physical drives, but you can may split that up into three logical volumes, each of which span the four different drives. Like it's different than RAID. It's different than a strategy for spreading your data in some regimented pattern. It's more flexible. It's just dealing with storage in a more flexible manner. So with FileVault 2, they just used it to say, okay, well, we need... Uh, we need something in between HFS Plus, which has no knowledge of, of how FileVault 2 works, <laughs> right. and uh, and the rest of the system to intercept all the data blocks and encrypt them. And as far as applications are concerned, they have no idea that they're running on an encrypted disk. They just see, you know, a regular disk. All the data is decrypted to them. They don't have to change. HFS Plus thinks la da I'm just doing my thing. Core storage is the magic that intercepts all those blocks and decrypts and encrypts them on reads and writes. And that's how it can, like, magically encrypt your disk while you're working in the background because it's just sort of core storage is going shuffling stuff around and moving it all over the place and uh hf the hfs plus code is all unaware your applications are all unaware and it all happens behind the scenes and i think in my mountain line review or somewhere i talked about how what core storage has to do to do its current job of just doing the encryption stuff even a single volume is be able to manage like allocations of blocks of data across physical storage and keep track of where they all are and efficiently handle them and stuff like that uh and how that's not that far off from what a file system might need to do. So I, you know how I feel about HFS Plus. It's terrible. It's old. It needs to go. Uh, if Apple has a new file system in the offing, we don't know about it yet. Uh, they looked into ZFS. That didn't work out. Uh, if they have a new one, who knows? But like core storage, the technology used to make core storage, a lot of that same technology would be applicable to making your own file system. Uh, not that core storage would kind of become a file system, but that the technology in it could be used to to develop your own file system. Uh, and so in this comment, uh, he, he uh, L. Garbarg, <laughs> says, <laughs> says uh, is very explicit about that. He says, uh, if you disassemble the existing core storage driver, and by the way, core, like I said, core storage has been around since Lion. It's on your disk now. It's used to do File Vault 2. You can read the man pages and learn about concatenating drives and see how buggy and <laughs> incomplete the implementation is. Uh, but he says, if you disassemble that driver, of course, you don't have the source code to it, so you run disassembly on the libraries, you will see a complete copy and write B plus tree implementation uh, based on a paper that he links, a paper from Usenix. Uh, oh, what's this guy's name? I thought I had it in the show notes. From somebody, oh, I got to look it up. Oh, show notes, where are you? It is by Ohad Rodehel. I don't want to bother to look it up because I'm going to mangle his name. O-H-A-D. That's his first name. And his last name is R-O-D-E-H. And he wrote this paper about how to make uh, B-trees uh, amenable to copy and write. And we had a whole show about this in the past. It was Hypercritical Episode 56, Computational Skeuomorphism, where we talked about uh, ZFS, uh, ButterFS, which I also like to pronounce BTRFS, uh, block level diffs, <laughs> deduplication, time machine, all sorts of file system stuff. Uh, and the big breakthrough that makes uh, ButterFS possible 
is are these copy and write B trees? Like the entire thing is based on that's why it's called BTRFS, B tree file system. Like they decided they're going to make one really awesome data structure that is suitable for many different needs based on some very recent breakthroughs in computer science theory and build a whole file system off of it. So you can listen to that episode if you want to learn about ButterFS. Uh, but uh, core storage has an implementation of those kinds of data structures and it uses it to do its job. And he says, uh, continuing the comment, they use that in order to implement their, their logical volume manager to do things like reshuffling data around the disk between different representation. And additionally, it supports transactions and rollbacks, something else we discussed on uh, Hypercritical 56, where either all your changes to the file system are committed or none of them are. Support for that in the data structures themselves, so you can safely uh, update things. Uh, continuing the comment, there are enough tools there to build all sorts of things from simple read-write caching to write-through caching, which is transactionally aware and would survive an SSD failure, only losing the data on the SSD that you had not yet made it back to the hard drive, but leading the hard drive in a coherent state. Additionally, it could extend the existing hot file support to hint things into core storage. Uh, and he concludes, if I had to guess, I would assume the current implementation is not super ambitious. While core storage itself is quite complex, it is clearly designed to support some impressive storage needs that Apple has been quite deliberate and cautious about rolling out. Uh, that's my assessment as well, that this Fusion Drive and the things Apple does with the file system are very sort of pragmatic, low-tech, and cautious. Even though core storage may have all sorts of interesting advanced possibilities and technology and stuff, uh, they like to do things kind of the dumb, reliable, predictable way, at least initially, before diving into something complicated. So HFS Plus is still there. They're not going to try to do this with the file system all at once. They're going to do this with their logical volume manager. It's going to happen at the OS level. The OS is going to decide, uh, you know, it's going to keep track of what files you use frequently, decide when to move them back and forth. Uh, having transactional B-trees and stuff like that, they may be using that to say, okay, when I move things, well, they don't even need to use it. They can just say, look, when I want to move something from one disk to the other, copy it completely to the new location and don't delete it off the old one until I'm sure it's been copied completely to the new location. That, and that way they can move data from one drive to the other behind the scenes without disturbing you uh, with safety. Uh, but, uh, you know, and, and he mentions because the, the whole thread and the Ars Technica article is like, is this working like SRT? Is it working like those uh, those hybrid drive mechanisms? Is it a write-through cache? Is it doing this? Is it doing that? Uh, I'm not sure that anyone, that anyone could come to a conclusion because we don't know with 100% certainty, but I, I believe everything that I've read, the speculation that I've read, that it, it works uh, as I described, that it's the union of the two pieces of information. And, uh, for example, if you've lost the entire SSD, you lost all the data that's on that SSD. That data is not on the spinning hard drive. Uh, and at same, by the same token, if you lose the spinning disk, obviously, uh, all the data that's on there, you lost as well. It's not acting as a cache. You lose either one of these things. It's, it's, uh, it's gone. And that's like not a super high-tech fancy solution. That's you know, it's just like RAID 0 between the two things. So RAID 0 is the only thing people know where you stripe data across two different disks, but it's not, that's nothing like RAID 0. But anyway, it, it is like RAID 0 in with the respect that if you lose one disk, you've lost your whole thing. Uh, and people don't like that because when you have one thing and it has some chance of failure, uh, if you add another component, even if it has the equal or lesser chance of failure, your overall chance of failure is increased because all you need uh, used to have just one thing that would go wrong. Now, if either one goes wrong, you're going to get a failure. So adding components to a system non-redundantly increases your chance of failure, possibly by just a small amount, but it's there. Um, I think that trade-off is worth it in this case because... Uh, have you know raid is not a backup and neither would it be if this was like a write cache you actually need a backup because you know 
you can't say, well, if it's just used as a cache, I wouldn't need a backup. Yeah, you still need a backup. Uh, in this scenario, you need a backup even more, but I think you should have a backup no matter what anyway. So I don't ding the solution for being more fragile and, and error prone uh, than it would be if it was just used as a cache, simply because I think you need a backup no matter what. And I will gladly take the increased performance of this setup in exchange for having to have a backup, which I think you'd have to have anyway. Uh, Can we fit in our third sponsor right here? Sure. MailChimp.com, easy email newsletters. These guys have been sponsors forever, and I love them. And uh, what do they do? They help you design email newsletters. We have two newsletters that we do here, and we may be working on a third one. And we do it all with MailChimp. Why? Well, to start out with, because it's free. You can send 2,000 emails a month to 12,000 people for free forever. Uh, But they do a whole bunch of other cool things. Actually, we've got more newsletters than that because we use the MailChimp thing they, they, they write some code, and all you do is drop this code into your iOS app or your Android app, and it lets people sign up for your newsletter right within the app. So if you use either of the two apps that we have, the 5x5 Radio or 5x5 Radio Junior, which is uh, the free version, you can sign up for the newsletter right there. This is all MailChimp's code that, that we integrate right in there. And the same thing works. You can embed the sign-up form on your website, make it look exactly like your site and your brand, or you can use their forms to do it. It's really great, and uh, they give you really, really cool analytics and statistics so you can see when people are signing up and what they're doing. Are they clicking the links that you provided them in there, or are they just reading it, or are they just deleting it? You see all this stuff. Really great analytics and a great bunch of folks over there in Atlanta at MailChimp. You can support this show, and you can sign up, and you can try out all this stuff for yourself by going to MailChimp.com slash 5x5. Support the show. Help John. MailChimp. All right, more technical details. Uh, also, getting more, more back to the low-tech implementation. Uh, the the operating system sees two drives connected to your computer. If you go to like the system information thing, it doesn't look like there's just you know it looks like one on your desktop. But if you go to the system information thing, it sees uh, SSD connects to, to whatever bus and the spinning disk connected as well. Uh, they're treated as a single disk in a software layer, so it's not like your the OS is not fooled by this. Uh, one question that hasn't been answered is, say you, you're not, you don't want this fusion drive thing. Like, ah, that's not for me. Can you like, you know, reformat both of them and end up with just a separate 128 gig SSD and a separate spinning disk? I assume you can, because I think they're just connected directly. And if you don't want that, you don't want it. Uh, Apple itself posted a tech note, whatever thing about the Mac mini and the iMac about fusion drive that has a fact that answers a, a bunch of questions. Uh, one of them is, can you take an external drive and add it to the Fusion drive? And oh, the answer right. there is, external no. drives cannot be added to Fusion drive. Uh, that strikes me as one of those limitations that, like, you know, they're being really cautious. They're rolling this out slowly. The core storage itself, again, from the command line now, you can make a bunch of disk images and attempt to, to join them together into a single volume that appears to your operating system and mount it. Sometimes it kind of works. Sometimes it doesn't. Last time I tried it, I have to confess, I think it was back around Lion that I tried it, and it was super buggy but sometimes it would sort of work maybe it works better now maybe it will continue to work better this core storage has a general purpose system for joining drives together but the user interface exposed to this is going to be like no we're not we're not ready for that yet all we're willing to support at this point is these specific drives that come with these specific macs and this exact configuration we qa those we know that works anything else all bets are off so the fact says no you just can't add an external drive uh i suspect if you tried to enforce it to might sort of work, but might not, but it's not a supported configuration. So, you know, their answer is just no. 
No, you can't do that. Can you partition a fusion drive? If you have this this one fusion drive, what does it mean to partition it? What right. are you, you what are you partitioning? Are you part like are you shaving a bit off the SSD or something like that? Uh, the answer to that question is you can add one partition to the hard disk part of the fusion drive only. And again, this is the type of thing like what, what what's making this limitation? The GUI, probably. Like if you if you wanted to use the command line tools to try to do something different, you probably could, and it would probably not quite work the way you wanted, and all your data would be hosed and you would be sad. But uh, but again, these are not lim- underlying limitations of the underlying technology. They're kind of limitations of the implementation or just like little fences to keep you from hosing yourself and running into buggy code. Uh, so in disk utility, you can add a partition to the hard disk and that's it. And just one partition and that's it. Uh, if you create a hard disk partition, is that part of the fusion drive? Nope. It's the separate disk. Uh, no participation in the fusion drive SSD thing or whatever. You take a partition of your hard disk. It's just like a normal partition of your hard disk. Can you add a Windows partition? Like, what does this always have to do with bootcamp? Uh, can I still do bootcamp? Yep, you can. Uh, you you know you can create a, that one partition. You can create if you use the bootcamp assistant. Uh, you will have bootcamp boot again. You're, when you reboot from that bootcamp partition, it will not use the SSD part of. The, it's not part of the fusion drive. It's just a regular spinning disk. Uh, because Windows has no awareness of that. Uh, can a fusion drive be mounted on another system in target disk mode? So if you reboot your iMac in target disk mode and connect it to another Mac, can it can your iMac show up as a hard drive on that other Mac? That's target disk mode. Uh, yes, you can do this, but only if the machine that you're using to mount the drive is running 10.8.2 or later. So it shows that 10.8.2 has some awareness of, of this core storage fusion drive stuff to be able to see that iMac as a single hard drive that is made up of the SSD and the other thing. Uh, and, and again, it's because you know that that's the reason you know this is some sort of core storage feature and not like oh some crazy new file system because ten eight two doesn't have a crazy new file system but it does have core storage and it's had it for years. You know, uh, can third party disk utilities be used with a fusion drive? The answer to that question is they should just put one word maybe <laughs> because the, the longer the the longer answer is third party disk utilities may or may not with fusion work with fusion drive. Thanks a lot, Apple. Yeah. Check with your third party software vendor for compatibility. Yeah, so. I would not buy one of these iMacs with Fusion Drive and then just take your favorite disk utility and run it on it blindly uh, because I think bad things might happen. <laughs> I mean, how long before some, I mean, what, like you're talking about like Disk Warrior or something like that. Yeah, it really depends on how low level these things are because obviously anything that gets down and dirty and says, all right, step aside operating system. I, I'm going to do some disk work here and I'm going to look at this disk. I know all about HFS Plus. Now don't bother me. I know all about it. Let me just check it out and I can repair your thing, right? That is not going to work the way you expect because step aside operating system means the operating is like, but wait, no, you don't know what you're looking at. It's not an actual, it's a, uh, and then, you know, you hose your disk. It, the, the intervening layer of core storage is important in the scenario. Now, obviously, drive vendor, uh, disk utility renders, I'm sure, will update their disk utilities to be aware of Fusion Drive and to not hose them and do all the right things. It could be something as simple as, oh, it appears like the boot sectors on this spinning disk are incorrect. I'll fix that for you. And, you know, now you just screwed it up because Fusion mm-hmm. Drives look a little bit different and you've just hosed it uh, because you thought you were being helpful in repairing it to make sure you could boot from it, but really it boots from this union of the two drives. It's not quite the same thing. Uh, I'm using video capture software and it reports frame rate drops during sustained captures. What could be wrong? This is another example of a great Apple fact. The answer to this question is uh, the drive's too slow. That's what's wrong. <laughs> so here's the long uh, description. Your project's capture requirements may exceed the sustained capture rate available to your fusion drive. That's just a restatement of the problem. <laughs> yes, that's what he's saying. I'm trying to capture video and it's not working. It's not working because you can't capture video because it's too slow. Yeah. Try capturing a smaller segment of the source or reduce its resolution. 
or try buying a Mac Pro that doesn't exist and connecting a Thunderbolt <laughs> dr uh, drive to it that has enough throughput. Oh, sorry. We can't can't yeah. do that either. Yeah. I mean, like, again, this is a consumer level thing. Uh, if you had pure SSD, maybe it would its capture rate would be better, but then you can't store as much. What well, the bigger question here, John, is this something, this technology, is this something that's here to stay? Do you think that w this is something that's going to, just like we saw the SSD drives, and of course it makes sense why the SSD drives would, but they crept into a whole bunch of different configurations, and now they're pretty much the sealed standard for all of the all of the laptops. Obviously, you can still, by the way, you can still get... Um, Gosh, I think it's a lot more money, but you can get a 768 gig flash drive in that high-end Mac Pro as a configuration option. If the SSD drives were big enough and affordable enough, would they would Apple even be messing with this technology, or is this something you think they're they're just is it a stopgap? In other words, I, I think it's going to be around for longer than we think it will, simply because, like what I said before, uh, SSDs are are getting cheaper and bigger and better. But at the same time, spinning disks are also getting cheaper and bigger yeah. and better. And SSDs are gaining on them. SSDs are, are growing much faster than the spinning disks are. But like the races, uh, hard, spinning hard disks are keeping up pretty well. So like we thought it would, if hard drives had just stayed still when SSDs appeared on the scenes, we'd already just be using SSDs. But they didn't. Hard drives didn't stay still. So this, you know, there's probably some calculus equation you can determine to say when will it, what will, when will it be that uh, that SSDs surpass spinning disks? Uh, but it's not going to be for a while, I think. And so we're all kind of tired of waiting. We all want that SSD type experience, but we also want those three terabyte spinning disks that you can get for like, you know, 150 bucks or whatever the heck they are now. They're so cheap and they're so huge. Like you said, oh, 768 gigabytes. That's huge. Three terabytes you can get cheap. Like these are not, exp I have one in my Mac, Mac Pro right now. <laughs> spinning storage is so cheap, but also so slow. So I expect this Fusion solution to be on every single Mac where, they can put it. Uh, obviously, the laptops, it doesn't make sense. They're so small. They're getting smaller. The SSDs, they've always had compromised storage. Not, I don't think Fusion is going to appear on the laptop, but the, the iMac, the Mac Mini, and the eventual thing that we're supposed to get for people who like Mac Pros, guaranteed to have Fusion drives. And I think they're going to have them for years uh, because it's just going to take a long time for, the disc to, to, uh, for, for that crossover to finally happen. It would happen if people just stopped researching spinning disks, but nobody's, nobody's, nobody's doing that. They, <laughs> no one's you know, doing that. They, they still keep keep on keeping on. So if this Fusion Drive solution, once it gets shaken out and everything, I think it's it's a good compromise that Apple is, is glad to have. Like I said, you know, we played that clip from that show all those years ago, or one year ago at least, one and a half years ago. That's what I wanted. I, I wanted I wanted the best of both worlds. I knew I couldn't get it because of technology. Like I can't just get SSD everywhere. It's going to take a long time. So just give me this compromise and do and you know don't make me manage it. And that's exactly what they're giving you through through pretty low tech approach to the operating system, handling the shuffling the files. I believe this is all happening at the file level, not the block level, uh, which is also kind of like time machine, isn't that? That's kind of a lame solution. If you just did the block diffs, it would be much more efficient, and that is true. But they're like, you know, we can do the file-based one. Uh, it's simple. It's low-tech. It's kind of cruddy, but it gets us most of the benefit without lots of the hassles. And so it seems like they're doing the same thing here. Uh, the, it, there are wrinkles, though. So here's one wrinkle from the back. My Fusion Drive cannot see Time Machine backups when I attempt to restore. What could be the issue? And the issue is Fusion Drive images must be the first ones written to a Time Machine backup drive. So that's kind of weird. Uh, so if you have an existing Time Machine backup, and you start trying to back up your Fusion Drive to it, uh, 
like you know, as an additional thing that won't work. You have to the fusion drive has to be the first thing that hits that time machine disk. So if you have a disk that you currently use for time machine and has existing data on it, you got to wipe it out and say, okay, now I'm backing up my iMac with my fusion drive or my Mac mini with fusion drive to this empty time machine disk. It's the first one in and it probably like sets th- lays things out in a different pattern and puts additional information so you can actually see it when you reboot and blah 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 like but that's a, a kind of an annoying wrinkle but probably unavoidable due to the weird way things work. Uh and you know, so I'll tell you what I'll tell you what some people are gonna miss. Right. Some people are gonna miss the fact that like right now, if you want to, you can before this fusion drive stuff, you can pull a drive out of a Mac or connect it in you remember you remember uh Firewire mode, how you can hold down the target disk mode. Target yeah. disk mode and, and it, that would still work, I imagine. Yeah, target disk mode still work. But the idea of just being able to pull out a drive and chuck it into any Mac, is that still going to be a possibility or does the OS need to understand how this drive is working? In other words, if you pulled this out and connected it to an older Mac, Mac OS 5, 10.5, what, what's it going to see? Is it going to see two separate partitions? One of them has like a few apps on it and one has data on it or what? I would assume that in, in, Apple's usually pretty good about doing clever, I don't know if you call it forward compatibility. Uh, here's an example from memory. Uh, when HFS Plus first came out, I believe this is when they did this, uh, HFS existed and then they, they introduced HFS Plus. And if you formatted a disk as HFS Plus and then took that disk, you know, it's an external disk, took it back to an old Mac that had no idea to be HFS Plus. It was running a version of the operating system that predates HFS Plus. It has no idea what the heck HFS Plus is. And you connected this drive to it. You're like, oh, it's just going to ask to initialize this disk, isn't it? It's going to say, oh, this is crazy. Instead, part of the HFS Plus format, at least initially it might still be there, was to put this little guardian volume thing that when a Mac that just understood HFS read this disk, it appeared to be some tiny little read-only disk that said something like, you can't, you know, there's nothing on this disk, it's HFS Plus, uh, this, you know, it, it wouldn't offer to erase it. It would appear to be like an empty, read-only, tiny little drive. Uh, and that's pretty clever engineering because when the Mac that is showing that little empty thing was created, HFS Plus didn't even exist and wasn't even developed. So there, I think they call that I don't know if they call it forward compatibility. It's not backward compatibility, but it's being able to, with your future development, make a product that if, if brought to an older machine still does something sensible. So uh, it's possible that they did that type of solution where they said, okay, there's no way you're going to be able to see this or read this uh, on uh, an old Mac. Uh, so let's put something in there to make sure that it doesn't offer to initialize the thing. Uh, that's one option. It's tech- probably technically possible. Uh, the option you talked about is like, do I just see half a disk? Does it just look like a disk that's got like a bunch of stuff in it and it looks like a sparsely populated regular disk? That's a possibility as well because then core storage could just treat, you know, yeah. it could under the covers hide that. But that's kind of dangerous because then it's like, well, exactly. you might start thinking it's like your full disk, but it's not. <laughs> that's what right. If you, what if you mess with it? Like you wouldn't want anyone to touch that. So uh, that would probably be bad as well. Uh, the possibility that you stick it in and says this disk is unreadable, I have to initialize it. That would be again because of like the oh, this doesn't seem to have the right you know information about the block maps or the boot sector, or for example, the entire catalog file is on this SSD, which I believe it probably is. Uh, although I don't know, I guess they could have two catalog files, one for each volume. Um, there's so many questions about this implementation. All the people who wanted me to talk about this said, "Explain to me how it works." I don't know. Nobody knows outside of Apple. And attempts to get information out of Apple about this technical nerdy information have not been successful. Not because Apple is trying to keep it secret, 
but because they just don't care. And then, you know, they want to give PR about the new products. They don't want PR to be diluted by talking about nerd things. So eventually, I'm assuming we will have a good technical explanation of how this works. Uh, but we don't quite know yet. But yeah, so uh, it, it, all these possibilities are possible. The bottom line is Apple does not want you taking one of these drives, yes, the, or, or otherwise, out and sticking it anyplace else. First of all, it's inside an iMac. You know, regular people aren't opening that thing up. I think it probably voids the warranty. Uh, the Mac Mini, same type of deal. You're allowed to replace the RAM, but you're not supposed to pry that sucker open and pull out the the spinning disk and stick it somewhere. That is way outside the realm of what any, Apple thinks you're doing with this. The non-existent Mac Pro that we use this technology, now we're getting into, okay, well, you're supposed to pull the drives out of the Mac Pro, Pro the current one anyway. They've got little sleds. Uh, what are you doing for me here? Um, <laughs> by that point, I think Apple has to have a solution for this. Is yeah. the solution to mark a drive as read-only? Is the solution to put some little Sentinel volume on it? That's what it looks like that. Maybe the solution is, is just to say, okay, it shows up as, as do you want to initialize this? Uh, that would probably be the worst possible solution, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a possibility. That, you know, the, the thing about Fusion Drive and any young technology like this is there's going to be bumps in the road. Like, the... <laughs> They have to work the kinks out of this. Uh, obviously, they probably thought that it seems like they thought they could get it out in time for Mountain Lion, and they didn't. That means there was kinks. There's probably more kinks, more caveats, more software that doesn't handle them correctly. Uh, all sorts of like, if you're really cautious, don't don't get a Fusion Drive. Uh, but if you want to live a little bit on the edge, uh, try it out, make sure your backups are good, and you'll probably be okay. Because Apple is so cautious in its rollouts, because they're saying it's only supported in these exact configuration, it is not a new general-purpose flexible system for, for doing arbitrary storage management with our great new logical volume manager and a cool new GUI and command line. It's not what it is. It's like this exact configuration, don't mess with it. It'll probably work okay. Uh, and like this, the optimistic success story is, look at File Vault 2. File Vault 2 was... You know, the first thing they implemented on top of their fancy new logical volume management storage layer core storage, right out of the box, it had nothing had ever shipped before. And that line introduced this entire new layer to the storage system, uh, and it used it to re-implement a feature that had gotten a really bad rap for being implemented very poorly. And File Vault 2 has worked without a hitch. I've, I've used it um, since the day it was released. I've been running uh, at least one Mac with File Vault 2 turned on. Zero problems. Perfect. No bugs background encrypt decrypt no problems whatsoever beautiful so that shows that their really cautious approach to doing storage stuff uh can pay off this is more complicated than uh than just encrypting a single volume but it's done by the same team i'm assuming the core storage people and so i think it will probably be okay uh, watch watch the mac world when they, when these stories start coming out See if you see like a story from a friend about how they accidentally hosed themselves because they didn't understand how Fusion Drive worked or some actual bugs. I mean, I'm sure there'll be updates to to help with this. I don't know. I don't know how to handicap this, but I, I do have this has a lot of things going for it in terms of the, the caution Apple usually uses with doing its storage stuff and the limited uh, configurations of uh, that they're supporting for now. I'm, I'm assuming there will be. More information about Fusion Drive coming out of Apple. At the very least, at this year's WWDC, I'm sure there'll be a technical session on it. If we have to wait that long, it'll be kind of disappointing. Uh, people asking if I'm going to update my Mac OS X review or do a review in between just talking about Fusion Drive. Well, I'm not going to update the Mac OS X review. That it is what it is now, plus or minus typos. I'm probably not going to do a separate story about Fusion Drive, like in the middle, you know, 
in, in between OS releases simply because I don't know anything about Fusion Drive. I know what you know. Like, I don't have any contacts, any information. Apple's not releasing it. And once Apple does release it, just, re- just read the information they release. Uh, I hope someone does one. I hope would, would you buy? Would you buy one of one of these drives in it? You personally, in a in, in your new Mac Pro, iMac, you know, in, in a Mac Pro. Let's say they come out and they said this this technology has worked so well in the iMac and the Mac Mini over the last year that we're proud to introduce it as our premier technology in the Mac Pro. Are you happy about this, John? Or are you unhappy about this? Uh, yes, I would. Win 2013, if, if a Mac Pro-like thing comes out and it has Fusion Drive, I will be getting with Fusion Drive. But that will be like a year, you know, a half a year later or something, right? So it's had a half a year to get the kink shaken out of it. And, you, you know, even if it was the very first thing on a Mac Pro, I would probably get it. Because I said, look, if it ends up being flaky or something, I can just stick a couple more drives in there and use those and keep the flaky Fusion Drive until you work the kinks out. Like, I have so much flexibility with a theoretical Mac Pro that has all these different drives in it that I would get it with this hybrid thing. Because I do want these, like I said, you know, I said it on, on episode 17. That's what I want, and I'm going to get it. And I'm willing to deal with the flakiness, especially on a Mac Pro where I have an out, where I'm like, all right, so if it's flaky, I use a couple other drives, you know, or I just wait until they get the kinks worked out. Because you have so many, so many options with so much internal and external storage on a theoretical new Mac Pro that it's, it's barely a risk. Uh, so I would definitely get this on my Mac Pro. I'm not even sure it will be an option not to get it on the Mac Pro. That's always been my my vision of what the next Mac Pro is going to be. It's like, it's not going to ship with like four spinning disks. It's, you know, SSD is going to be the option. And is it, is it going to be an SSD boot drive? A bunch of SSD bays in the area where the opticals were, or a new case that's designed around only yeah. taking 2.5 inch storage with yeah. maybe one. Like, that's what I've always imagined this thing looking like. And Fusion Drive just cements it. Like, I'm not even sure you'll be able to get a Mac Pro without Fusion Drive. Uh, so I'm getting mine with. Can't wait for you to get this thing. <laughs> this thing that doesn't exist. That we just yes. <laughs> a hypothetical I'm, thing. I'm that very you nervous need. about it, and I'm especially nervous because it's going to cost so much money. Like if this thing has Retina desktop display and some crazy video connector, because current, you know, we talked about this before. Current display port standards don't support enough resolution to drive a true Retina 27 inch desktop display. They just they don't they don't support that resolution. So they need a combination of video card. And a new version of their thing they use to pump the pixels out to their display. Like, all that needs to be sorted out, plus connected to what has to be a fantastically expensive display with, like, 80 gazillion pixels on it. Right. Ah, that's going to cost a lot of money. It's going to cost a lot. So I'm I'm saving my pennies. Is there there any way that you'll ever be content with, with some kind of iMac? Is there ever a day to you... Because you know what... Let's say Apple does come out with with uh, some kind of Mac Pro in 2013. You know, and we've talked about this. It's only a matter of time before the Mac Pro really is is just gone, and they're just not making them anymore. You you know, ten years from now, there's not. I guarantee you, there'll be an iMac. There's not going to be a Mac Pro. Yeah, you know that that eventually going away. The only things keeping it around are like uh, storage and video cards and yep, other and adding cards, right? So storage, you would assume eventually that takes care of itself because, you know, everything is solid state, you know, long, on the long graph that happens. So those big bulky annoying spinning disks, they go away, they look ridiculous. We look back at them, oh, I can't remember when we use those things. That's fine. That takes care of the storage thing. Video, it's conceivable that you could fit the most powerful video card made by man for, <laughs> for consumer applications behind a gigantic 27-inch display. Totally conceivable. They don't do it now, though, but you could do it. Uh, for me, that's all I need. 
for the other for the pro people who have to put their crazy video capture cards or other sorts of things in there that may sort itself out by just the systems getting powerful enough that those capture cards like it can all happen on the gpu or it's all done by the os or i don't know all the range of things people use adding cards for but you've seen the number of slots in apple's full side powers decrease over the years i forget how many like the mac what are the mac 2 had like eight slots or something crazy maybe just four slots i don't remember but the number of slots in the tower max in the modern era have decreased that you know they they take them out like we'll just take out one and you don't notice you're like ah, that kind of annoys me because i was filling all the slots on my previous one but i guess it's okay and they take out one more and you know they're especially with a double with uh things like the, the video cards take up two uh slots and everything it's i could be happy with a bunch of innards stuck to the back of a really big 30 inch retina display yeah. five years now i could be happy with it because all i want is tremendous amount of ram uh, lots of flexibility for storage and a really, really, really fast video card. Uh, I don't know how long it will take for that thing to appear, but I mean, I, like you said, I'll eventually I'll be forced to. Eventually, no one's going to have something the size of a dehumidifier sitting under their desk like this. Just, it's you know, that's not the way things are going. But for now, for next year, Tim, you promised me something. Better be good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what else you got for today? Did they announce anything else? Let me think. Hmm. 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 I think they did something with the iPad. Oh, yeah. They released the iPad. Uh, they called a fourth generation iPad with retina display. The uh, in slightly updated innards, as you say, and the lightning connector. And they now call it the iPad with retina display. And then they have, of course, the iPad mini, which also has a lightning connector. So we'll start with the iPad 4, as it will be known by people who want to distinguish it from the 3 and so on. We're not taking our foot off the gas, says Tim Cook. The previous iMac, the iPad, the, the iMac, previous iPad, the iPad 3 was released just, what, seven months ago or something? Yeah, that uh, sounds about right. Yeah, seven months ago. So this is a, a, a pretty uh, fast update. And this is the, we're not taking our foot off the gas. We're not going to wait. For like, you know, uh, wait a grace period, like let's wait a year before we put it. We've got a new uh, iPad ready to go. It's twice as fast as the other one. We're putting it out. We are not taking our foot off the gas, says uh, says Tim. Oh, and earlier in that thing, he said, people love their iPads. <laughs> Which reminded me once again, as it always does, of uh, the movie Singles and the line, people love their cars. <laughs> people love their iPads. Did you hear the clip that uh, that came out uh, earlier in the week, and we had it on the frequency? By the way, we have a new uh, we have a new daily news show on Five by Five called the Frequency Five by Five TV slash Frequency. Did you hear this? It was like a collection of all of the uh, all of the really nice uh, words that that they say during. It was like a collection in three minutes of all the beautiful, amazing. Yeah, I think I've heard, if not that exact one, very similar things before. Yes, all the superlatives. All the superlatives. Apple loves those. Yeah. Uh, So this iPad 4, uh, I heard a couple people refer to it as the iPad 3S. That's not too far (laughs) off the mark because, I mean, you could say that and people say, oh, you're you're saying that as like a joke of like the 4 is not really that much better than the 3. It just should have been called the 3S. But I've always been the opposite opinion, that the 4S was... A tremendous step over the four. Like they improved every single thing about that thing. It just looked the same on the outside. Like it was every part of it inside was better. 
Uh, and people are like, oh, well, you just edit an S and it looks the same. Therefore, it's not as good. Or really, you want to trade me your iPhone 4 for your 4S? Then it, it was a big update. And the same thing here. Looks the same as the iPad 3. Weighs the same. Plus or minus, you know, it's two grams heavier in all models. But you're not going to feel two grams. Same thickness. Uh, obviously, has a lightning port instead of the big one. Uh, instead of the big 30-pin uh, thing. But it's twice as fast. It's got an A6. That's not, you know, if if they released a new... Uh, I can't use the Mac Pro because it, because of its stupid, you know. If they released a new 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro uh, five months from now or whatever, whatever seven months after the introduction is. I forget when they came out. They came out like in the summer. Seven months after the 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro comes out, they release one that's twice as fast. People are going to go like, well, so what? It's just a speed bump. It's <laughs> twice as fast. I mean, that doesn't happen in the Mac line anymore. It still happens in the iOS line. Two times, and not like two times fake benchmarky as fast. Actual two times as fast. And how do they do that? The A6 cores are are faster. Uh, it's clocked higher than the A5X was. This is the A6X. The X stands for that extra. I don't know what it stands for, but I like to refer to it as the, the extra GPU core. It's got four GPU cores, probably the exact same four GPU cores that were in the A5X, but just clocked higher. They were at 250 megahertz in the A5X. They're probably 500 megahertz in this thing. The CPU was one gigahertz in the A5X. It's probably 1.5 in the A6X. Uh, they improved the, the FaceTime camera, so it's HD. It's got that dual-band Wi-Fi thing, which may or may not help you, uh, depending on what access points you have available. Uh, this is an, uh, an excellent, excellent iPad. Uh, and I see no reason that they should have waited. I, I made a tweet that, like, uh, you know, I used to love my iPad 3, but I, now I guess I can use it to level a piece of furniture or something. That was a joke, <laughs> you know, based on the idea that people think, oh, my iPad 3 stinks now. No, I still like my iPad 3, right? I would rather have a 4, but I'm not upset at Apple for obsoleting me or anything like that. They're keeping, they will not take their foot off the gas, and I don't think they should. Uh, people saying, oh, they had to release the iPad 3 with its crappy GPU. I still love my iPad 3. It still works right. In fact, I've heard people say, I don't need anything to be faster on my iPad 3. Obviously, you know that's not my answer. I want things to be faster, but it shows that for regular people, the iPad 3 is not like dog slow. It doesn't have a bad rep, even though it actually it does have problems because it has to push so many pixels around with games and everything like that. Uh, the iPad 4 is like the first one that has like grown into its retina display. It's going to be the same thing when the, uh, the Haswell uh, MacBook Pros come out, uh, Intel's new uh, you know, CPUs and associated chipsets, because the current crop of Retina MacBook Pros can barely handle all those pixels and can, like, chug in certain situations with, like, simple tasks like scrolling and putting... Like, they're just... They can barely handle it. And the same thing with the iPad 3. In games and stuff like that, it's borderline. Like, in many situations, the iPad 2, with its non-retina display, performs better on the same games than the iPad 3 because it's got to push four times as many pixels. Uh, you know, this, this iPad 4 has finally grown into the retina display. It can handle it. It's appropriate. It's balanced in the same way that the next crop of Retina MacBook Pros will be balanced and nice. And uh, so I give this machine a thumbs up. Uh, I, I We talked about in the past show, like, would they just ever just put out something with just a lightning port on it, but the same iPad 3 insides? I didn't think they would. Uh, they haven't. Uh, this, you know, I, I was even more conservative. I said, maybe they'll just do a die shrink right. of, of the A5X and then they can make it thinner and lighter. But it would be the same speed. They haven't done that. They said so they're not taking their foot off the gas. They could have put, they could have fielded that. A die shrunk A5X, thinner, uh, same battery life as the iPad 3, but it wouldn't be any faster, right? That would not be pushing the ball forward. So they said, no, we're, we're going to say 2X faster is more important than making this thing thinner, more important than making it lighter, because it's not like 
10% faster. It's two times faster. It's the, it's the A6X. Uh, and improving the camera and stuff is nice as well. Uh, so I give that uh, new iPad a thumbs up. I, I've kind of, I mean, my, my brother was uh, asking me about this. Like, I had my parents buy an iPad a couple months ago. Uh, and uh, I was like, don't you think I should wait? Don't you think they're going to revise the iPad? I'm like, nah, they probably got time, right? Mm. Because who expects a new iPad in seven months, right? Yeah, it's way, but, and, and there are some people who are saying, well, that's too soon, but like, I would love it if they just continued to increase the speed of these things and the performance of these things as often as, often as they can. Right. Like, and, and because what I expected, uh, you know, at most would be like, well, maybe they revise it. They put a lightning connector on. They put a die shrunk A5X. It's thinner. My parents don't care if it's a little bit thinner and, you know, uh, a little bit lighter. It's not that big a deal. They'll be fine with an iPad 3. And I think they are fine with an iPad 3. Uh, but if I had known this was coming, like if this had been a year, you know, if there had been a year gap, I would have said just wait, uh, wait a couple months. Uh, they were in town, so I would like to be able to buy the iPad with them and show them how to use it and stuff like that. But I think my parents are fine with the iPad 3 that they have. Uh, they certainly won't notice the speed difference as they play like their crossword puzzles and, and read email on the on their thing. But this is a good machine. And finally, this is what the, the problem with doing it in order is that now we're 40 in. We finally get to talk about the iPad mini. The whole point of this announcement, that's what I'm saying in the beginning. Like this was like, oh, this is going to be the new iPad mini announcement. Look at all this stuff they introduced before they even get to the iPad mini. It's enough stuff. Like they could have stopped now and it would have been like this was a good Apple event. They like revved a whole bunch of stuff in their line. There's a new uh, flagship iPad that's twice as fast. Everything's great. But of course, we all expected the iPad mini. It was teased in the thing. Uh, they did the cool like rotation reveal where they just turned around the iPad for Look who's hiding behind it. It's mm-hmm. a little iPad mini. Isn't that cute? <laughs> uh, and we've been talking about this on this show. You've been talking about it on all your other shows for just weeks and weeks, maybe even months. Have we been talking about this I for think months? months? Yeah, I think so. It seems like, like half a year. We've been <laughs> talking about this. Oh, Apple's going to make a smaller iPad. Oh, we all know it's coming. When is it going to come? And this whole time we've been discussing, at least on this show, every time we talk about this, I would say, you know, well, in, in some theoretical iPad mini that Apple comes out with and in a hypothetical iPad mini that they produce, blah, 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 blah. I was forced to pick a name for this thing in order to discuss it, right? Apple, coincidentally, was forced to pick a name in order to ship it. And I don't know why it's so shocking. We should have thought it's in the last show. Why, we both made, why wouldn't they pick the same thing? I've been calling it iPad Mini for, for weeks and weeks. And yet in the last show, we're like, what about the name? Could it be iPad, plain iPad, iPad Air, iPad Mini? No, they won't call it that. It was like we dismissed it because that's, that's what we're calling it, like just in our discussion. But like, what would be the real name? Well, the real name was iPad Mini. It was so obvious, like in hindsight, that we've been just constantly, at least I've been calling it, you've been calling it iPad Mini too until you got on your junior kick. No, I, I, I mean, I, th- I, think, um, I think it's really the only thing, the only name that they could have picked for it i just didn't want it to be that yeah and i, I think mean, that's why a lot of the speculation was there john because people don't especially like that name they don't like mini i don't like mini well see plain old ipad totally still i say would have been totally plausible and also ipad air uh i like i said i think they like to keep the air to to that sort of the desktop line of very lightweight things uh but i think that could have worked as well but mini like in hindsight, is the obvious choice. Like I've been saying iPad Mini myself. Why have I been saying iPad Mini? Because it just, it just fits. The Mini's already in there. Yes, it's on the Mac line, but it's also been on the iPod line, and you know, so I, I don't mind it. it. It it's nice so that I don't have a backlog of shows where I talk about this product that people don't understand what I'm talking about. I it's iPad Mini. Always oh, talking about that. I I like the same way I liked it with iPhone five. What did I call the iPhone five for the weeks and weeks before we were talking about? It? I called it iPhone five, and then got flack for it. I'm saying. I'm just referring, you know what I'm talking about when I say iPhone. And they called it iPhone 5. So thumbs up to Apple on naming. <laughs> now I should just believe whatever it is that I say in the weeks beforehand will be the name. 
so their pitch for this is what can you, what can you do with a mini that you can't already do with an iPad 4? I can think of all sorts of uh, unsavory and lewd <laughs> things that could fill in there, but what they choose to go with was hold it with one hand <laughs> or hold it in one hand. Uh, and so, yeah, the pitch for this thing is, uh, as we talked about in the past show, like I've always said, this they're building this thing to meet a price point, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, but they can't say that. They can't say they're building this to meet a price point. They have to say something about the advantages. And what they're going to say is it's thin, it's light, you can hold it in one hand, getting back to Gruber's theory of calling it air because it's the same pitch with the air. Look how light and airy it is. They didn't go with the air name, but yes, that's their their features and benefits pitch. Is like, look what it can do for you. It's it's lighter. It's, you know, it's not, especially since they didn't reduce the weight of their big iPad. Like, this is going to really feel very airy. It's super thin, as thin as a pencil, as they said. Uh, the thing about the physical design it's like it's got the aluminum back, right? Or it's, the whole thing is aluminum. It's a unibody type thing, and they carve it all out, which is, this thing's got to feel incredibly solid, although I haven't seen one yet in person. But that means it's also got, as far as I can tell from the picture, and I'm pretty sure, aluminum power button, volume buttons, and mute rotation lock switch thingy, right? That's nicer than the iPad 4. That's nicer than their flagship model. The iPad 4 and the iPad 3 have these terrible plastic buttons for volume and for rotation lock and for the power button with incredibly sharp edges the edges of the plastic on those the volume rockers and the switches it's like it's like a razor's edge i'm always afraid <laughs> i cut my finger on them. who decided on that like it's just cruel and so these things they're aluminum when you have like metal buttons that's why people like i think the original iphone had the metal buttons and everything it's better than the plastic ones the iphone 5 has metal buttons again i believe uh it just feels higher quality, and they have the edges cut off with their favorite thing, the diamond-cut chamfer. They love it, or chamfer, as uh, chamfer. Johnny, I would, Johnny Ive would say. I confirm with someone from the UK, that's, <laughs> that's how they say it there. He doesn't just have a lisp. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this, is, this thing has, a, uh, like, I think, a higher-end higher physical appearance and probably a higher-end feel than the iPhone, the, than the iPad 4, than their flagship, which is, you know, if you say, what is your flagship iPad? It's the big one. It's the iPad 4, right. you know, iPad with Retina display or whatever, and yet that still, thing still has the plastic buttons. So that's a shame. I hope they update the big iPad to use this uh, much nicer design. Uh, I do kind of like the rocker as opposed to two separate buttons. So maybe what I would, ideally what I would like is a uh, metal rocker switch with an edge that doesn't cut me. And all right. So I haven't actually been cut by yet, but damn it, it's really sharp. Uh, the thickness, it's, what is it, 7.1 millimeters? The iPod Touch is 6.1 millimeters. Uh, so it's it's a one millimeter, uh, no, was it? Yeah, 6.1, 7.3 versus 6.1. Uh, so it's, it's almost as thin as the iPod Touch, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, because that iPod Touch is really thin. So this thing will really feel airy. Uh, it's about half the weight of an iPad 3 iPad 3 is pretty chunky, or an iPad 4. So, you know, again, Air would have been an appropriate name for this thing. The physical design wrinkles is that the black one has a black back, and I'm like, oh, we have to go through the scratching thing again, like with the, like with the iPhone 5, because that black coating is probably the same process that they put the black coating on the back of the thing. It's just a coating. You eventually scratch through it. You're going to get to the silver aluminum. Maybe it'll look weird. This is a case where... Uh, your chances of entering Millennium Falcon Zone in terms of aesthetics are probably lower because it's going to take a heck of a lot scra more scratches to uh, fill the area in a pleasing manner than it would on an iPhone 5. So I don't, I, I'm still thinking about getting one of these. I really do not like the white front, but I sure do like that silver back. So Apple, if you're listening, black front, silver back. It's what we all want. 
someone someone's got the idea that they like the monochrome black things for both the phone and the pad to convince that person that they're wrong <laughs> please black front silver back that's what we all want uh they did the a really kind of weird comparison during the presentation with uh, what was it the Nexus Seven? I was up on the screen. But they didn't refer to it by name. No, it they did not. Like, they did not call it out by name. They simply had it sort of there and identified, and um, they were comparing it for the purpose of saying that just by making it seven point, I believe seven point eight five, or being a little bit that there was so much more room. There was what was the percentage that they said? Do you remember? They, they did all sorts of gymnastics to I mean, there's two, two things here. One is they're trying to emphasize the very real difference in area because length differences in length, uh, you know, it's 2D versus 1D. And in, intuitively to people, it doesn't make any sense that if you increase the diagonal by a couple inches that you double the area of the that you double the square, you know, inch area of the screen. Like so that that non-intuitive thing that it, oh, the screen's not that much bigger. It's like an inch bigger and it. An inch is a unit of length. Like, that's not what they mean. So they kept doing the little, I, let me do the multiplication for you and show you that just by, you know, even though this is 7.9 inches versus whatever that uh, the Nexus 7 is, it's a tremendous amount more area because they're 16 by 9 and we're by 4 by 3. Like, they're just doing the math for you to try to emphasize an actual real benefit to having uh, this thing here. But the, not referring to it by name was, before we even get into the, what they said in the in the thing, is like, People are like, oh, that that shows weakness. If you're not afraid of the other guy, you should be able to mention them by name. And then some people say, not show, not mentioning them by name, that shows strength. Because you, you know, you you can do that and people don't care about that other thing. They don't think you're being wimpy, you know. I kind of come down on the side that not mentioning it by name, I don't think it's weakness or strength. I think it's it's uh, less bold. Let's put it that way. Uh, does it... I don't know if it reveals anything about what Apple believes its position is, but it is less bold than naming than calling the guy out. Here is the Nexus Seven, this the great latest and greatest seven inch Android out Android tablet. We're going to show you how our thing is so much better. And they used to not be shy about naming things. They'd show like this is the whatever uh, the most popular model of thing. And sometimes they would say this is just a popular model. But I feel like naming names is more bold. And it's not like we don't know. Like that's why it feels kind of like timid. Uh, I'm I'm not sure why they decided not to name it by name, but uh, it it definitely feels less bold. So I, I give a thumbs down to that opinion, regardless of uh, that decision, regardless of whether it actually reveals or communicates strength or not. I what I think I think it just it definitely communicates uh, timidity. Um, so when they were comparing it to the thing, they're like, "Look, this thing is made of plastic. It's thicker. It's heavier. It's got a smaller display. Can you believe that? Like our thing is thinner. It's lighter. It feels more expensive. It's got a bigger display." seems like it's no comparison. Uh, but of course, they didn't mention this thing is $80 cheaper <laughs> or $130 cheaper right. if you get the 8 gigabyte model. Uh, but, you know, they, they save the price for the end and we, we will too. Uh, iPad mini, 35% larger screen. And then they went and they said, but that's not all. That's just like measuring with a, when the things are off. When you turn them on and show the web browser, let's just take out all the Chrome, pun intended, for, around this web browser and see how much content area is there in Safari versus the, the, the you know the browser on, in Android on this thing. It's 50% larger on the, the iPad mini when you take out all the Chrome. And when you go landscape, because the thing is 16 by 9 and it cuts out these huge strips from the top and the bottom, like it's 67% more content area in landscape. So... They really wanted to hammer on our screen is bigger in reality and in practice it's even bigger because of our aspect ratio and because we are a little bit more, uh, uh, we, we have less Chrome. I mean, like, at the very least, the Android thing had a bunch of software buttons up on the screen that were taking up a big stripe of area. Uh, so 
you know, they're, they're getting into like, you know, in that specific app. So what maybe they what they didn't do is let's see how big a movie is on this, because the movie will fill the 16 by nine screen, but will be more letterbox than the four by three. Like it's a little bit of voodoo, but uh, they they had some good points to make there. Uh, the next section of that little part, they you hammered even more on some really good points of like, look, it's all about software ecosystem. Why would you buy this iPad mini and not these other smaller tablets that are going to be less expensive? But you don't know that yet in the presentation. Uh, we have tablet apps. They have stretched out phone apps. Right. People change their websites to to detect that you're on an iPad and make them look awesome. And if you go on this other thing, you get like the phone thing. Right. And, and that's that, a real that's a real advantage. Yeah, that was a damning presentation yeah. because they, they had so many examples. Like, look at this. Look, can you believe this crap? Just slide after slide. Can you like? <laughs> and that's that's not you know that's that's convincing you. You want to be in the iOS ecosystem, not just because of our apps, but like just everything you do. It's all centered around iPad. I think I think Gruber posted sometime this week like the URL or someone else tweeted the URL of some website they were going to. Uh, it was like if you go there on a tablet, you get it was like a movie promotion website and. The host name was like iPad dot whatever the movie name is dot com. And that was the generic tablet website that if you went there on Android tablet, you'd be connecting to iPad dot something dot com. Like it's so clear that people aren't designing for tablets. They're designing for the iPad. Uh, And that's true of uh, applications as well. So that that was a great part of the presentation, really emphasizing their advantage in in a way that embarrasses their competitor who they wouldn't name because they were wimpy. Uh, The internals of this thing, their pitch maybe not the strongest pitch equal to or better than an iPad two in every way. An iPad two. What? Yeah. I hope it's better than the iPad two because iPad two is pretty old. It's got the a five in there. You don't need the X because it does not have a retina display. Uh, you know, the, the specs are all what we expected it to be. Uh, it's a die shrunk a five, 10, 24 by seven, sixty eight lightning connector. It's nice that it got the faster Wi-Fi and, and stuff like that. Also nice that it got the, uh, the HD front facing camera, uh, I guess the economies of scale make that good, but they could have cheaped out and done the crappy camera. They didn't. Five megapixel back camera, 1080p video, 720p uh, front-facing camera, uh, 10-hour battery life, which you expected, but it's still pretty impressive given something that thin. Every inch an iPad, a great slogan. Good job, Apple's copywriters there. It really emphasizes what it is that you're getting here. You're getting a real iPad. It runs iPad applications. You're into that ecosystem. Uh, Thumbs up on that. They did have a little Johnny Ive head-leaning section where he says we we started from the beginning i can't do his voice we started from the very beginning and rethought yeah you always start from the beginning johnny you know uh and they showed if we just took the regular ipad and shrunk it down yeah but what if you know we think maybe we can make the sides a little bit thinner and they did that i think there was a lot of a uh spy shots and presentations that are around uh around the web in the weeks leading up to this that showed something that looked very much like the real thing. And people are like, Apple's never going to ship that. You know why they have the big frame around the iPad? It's so you can grab a dummy. They're not going to ship something that has like <laughs> two millimeters around the sides. Oh, looks like they did. <laughs> All right. So the top and bottom chin and forehead are th- much thicker than the left and right sides. At least it's uniform. Please take note, uh, Kindle Fire. Uh, <laughs> but it does, it looks, it's, it's halfway between the border on an iPad and the border on an iPhone, which it's kind of appropriate when you think about it, but the first thing that enters everyone's mind, and it's those same people who are, you know, naysaying the, those spy shots and mock-ups, is, geez, does that mean if I hold this thing, I have to sort of precariously perch my thumb on, like, that edge and make sure it doesn't go onto the screen? And you watch the videos, and you're like, oh, God, you know, but wait, that guy's thumb is on the screen. He's, isn't he screwing himself up? And he's scrolling while his thumb is on the screen and stuff like that. And so if you look at the, the copy on their website, they have this little section that says, 
rethinking the screen meant we had to rethink I'm re- reading in a stupid voice. Oh, I like the voice. Rethink the software behind it. The iPad mini intelligently recognizes whether, you, whether your thumb is simply resting on the display or whether you're intentionally interacting with it. It's the kind of detail you'll notice by not noticing it. And it's a great example of how Apple hardware and software work together, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so they've thought of this and they think they have a software solution, which is ignore that thumb when, it, when you're just holding it. And they, in the videos they show in the little commercials, sometimes they show someone saying, look, he's, he's, he's a happy guy. Here's this happy model holding his iPad mini. His thumb's on the screen. No big deal. It works fine. Like he's using it with his other hand. But other sections they show, here's the dude with his finger just barely on that edge like you're like oh god dude don't shake your hand like are, do you sure you have a secure grip on that thing because i know you don't want to touch the screen like and this is what i worry about with this thing again not having touched it is that even if it works exactly as advertised and you can put your thumb on there and it's not a big deal people will feel like they shouldn't put their thumb in there and try to hold it by that little thin edge on the side uh in practice i think the thing that may save it is the same thing that saves the iphone and the ipod touch that i'm holding in my hand right now it's so small you can hold it with one hand, and right. once you get a hand on both sides of it, you don't need an edge to grip like you do on the iPad, right? Just put it in one hand. Now, for, for people with small hands, or women, younger people, men with small hands, maybe they, that's not comfortable. Maybe they do the thumb, the, the, the pinky perch on the bottom. Do you do the pinky perch? Yeah, where you sort of use that as the the rest, if you will. Yeah, like there there are... Maybe this will be a complete non-issue. And the, the thing that gives me confidence about this is like, look, Apple doesn't make these decisions arbitrarily. Uh, they, they have people carrying these things around in the labs for a tremendous amount of time. Uh, whatever trade-off they think they're making here, uh, you know, I think they're comfortable with it. They're not going to be shocked and surprised. like, oh, oh, my God. You know, that, that just because Apple wouldn't be surprised doesn't mean this may still be the next manufactured controversy, you know, where they, they make up something like, Edges are too thin. People are dropping their iPad mini. Um, that People may manufacture that scandal, but I feel like Apple has a good idea of the trade-offs involved and they decided this is the correct one. Uh, I'll have to see one in person to decide why they decided this was the correct one because uh, you might say, what's the big deal? Why not just put a little bit bigger border on that? The thing that I'm thinking right now, not seeing one in person, is that if you put the bigger border on it, it makes it, makes it harder to reach the far edge of the screen with your thumb. Because they show you using this thing like you use a phone, right. one hand with a thumb. Not that you can reach your thumb to every corner of the screen, but you can get a lot done with just your thumb and a little hand shimmy. And if they had the full-size borders, it's harder to get from to get your thumb from one edge all the way to the other edge because you've got to reach all the way over that, that gap. Uh, that's my guess for why they did this. Uh, and, you know, that, that's what they're trading off. They're like, we can make this one hand thumbable a little bit easier if we make those edges thinner. And the trade off is we got to feel the figure out how to deal with the glass touching thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other caution about the, the glass touching is how does it know that I'm not I'm not interacting with it or whatever? Is it because people tend not to put controls that close to the edge of the screen? Is it because you see my thumb and it doesn't move or you see my thumb and it does move? Lots of people said iOS 6 already has this feature. And on an existing iPad or iPhone, you can do the same thing and it won't detect your thumb. I, when I read that tweet, I tried it in Twitterific, and no matter how I touched my thumb to the edge of the screen in Twitterific, it, it accepted that input. So it, it's obviously not, not an OS-wide feature that affects all applications in iOS 6, but there may be something that I'm missing there. Uh, so I look forward to trying one of these out and learning how they work in real life with, with a, a real uh, real use situations. And I'm very so curious. The, uh, compare this in a way, if you will, to the... Setting in uh, in Mac OS X, or OS X as we're now supposed to call it. And I'm looking for this, let's see where this is these days. I think it is under, isn't it under accessibility? 
trackpad. Track, uh, it's I don't think it's uh, is it under trackpad where you can ignore. An yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Well, unfortunately for the pessimistic side of this, every nerd I know has that turned off because if you leave that, yeah, it's the off, worst. It's the worst. You're infuriated by like because it doesn't know what your intention is. Ignore unintentional touches, and what it ends up doing is ignoring some legitimate touches and you're like no you listen to my touch <laughs> when i touch you you move the cursor and like that happens to you once and you're like i'm going to that preference i'm turning that thing off and that's like if you go to apple tech notes and stuff they're like are you having trouble with input oh just make sure you turn this it's like well why do you even have that feature if all your like technical support and geniuses and help and every nerd you ask says you got to turn that off man so that is a you know scenario where uh like maybe they did made the opposite choice maybe they like the error in the other direction on the iPad where it's better to have accidental and intentional touches than to ignore when you want it to. And if they just switch that balance, it could end up being a nice feature, but you're that's, that's a good point to bring up that we've been down this road before and it hasn't worked out that well. Uh, hopefully they've learned from this same experience and we'll see how this works because that, that's the worst case scenario that you get this thing and it's uh, a, it probably wouldn't be a setting in iOS and then you're angry if you're not jailbreaking. Right. And B like you're trying to, I try to use the iPad Mini, but I'm so so frustrating when it ignores my my thumb scroll because it thinks I'm unintentionally touching it. That would be bad. Uh, they do have a new smaller smart cover for this thing. They ditched the aluminum hinge part and tried to pitch it as an advantage. Mm-hmm. Now it's just a full piece of polyurethane with some magnets shoved inside it. Right. The the aluminum hinge, like uh, the problem with it that I see in practice because I've used a lot of them for uh, scratching. Scratching. They scratch their stuff. It's very they scratchy. And your kid tears off accidentally, which happens all the time with these iPads, and they're flapping it around. You're like, oh, geez, no, don't. Scratching is not like it ha- mine hasn't scratched yet, and it's been pretty roughly abused by the kids. Uh, and we have an iPad 2, same deal, but it, it looked more expensive, didn't it? Like it looked more elegant than this, you know, the polyurethane wrapped thing. Uh, so I, I think probably Apple doesn't think this is a better solution. They just think it's cheaper to build and doesn't have the scratching problem. The real test will be when the iPad iPad 5 comes out, does that smart cover use the same approach or does it stick with aluminum or something similar? Uh, now, finally, price. Too talked much, to lot, too expensive. Uh, talked a lot about price. On too the expensive. Past, to review what my predictions were. Too I said, expensive. Yeah. Uh, you believe it's too expensive. I believe that too. Based on my, my predictions were... The obvious choice is two ninety nine, but I don't believe that. Uh, two forty nine was my conservative choice, but and my optimistic choice was one ninety nine because I thought Apple could hit those yeah. prices. Yeah, they are. They blew them all. This three twenty nine is the cheapest you can get in twenty eight. We were always talking about the sixteen gigabyte Wi Fi model. There is no eight gig model. Uh, that was as expected, but the cheapest one you can get is three twenty nine. That that is expensive. As you said, too expensive. Too expensive. Now, what, what does too expensive mean? Uh, the reason I was hoping for 199 uh, and that was my optimistic choice, is because I believe Apple can make something with similar specs to these for 199 For 199 you'd probably have to downgrade the cameras. Like, don't make it HD front-facing. Fine, downgrade the cameras. And the back camera not as good. Uh, maybe, you know, like... I don't or get, know, rid the, of a whole, the, get rid of one of the cameras. I don't care. The dual-band Wi-Fi or whatever, but like... That would break the market open because I've always said that Apple Apple is not making a small iPad because they think small form factor is awesome. It's because they need to hit a price point. And what I tweeted in the uh, the couple days before the thing was that this is a battle of two Apple tenants, I called them. Uh, the two tenants were, uh, I got to remember what they were. I thought I could do them from memory, but I don't remember what they were. 
Uh, one was we don't build to meet a price point, and the second one was we will not leave a price umbrella for competitors. And I got a lot of Twitter feedback and arguments of like, well, I don't think that's an Apple tenant because blah, 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 blah. Like, I didn't make those up. I'm not projecting onto Apple. Those are things actually said by Tim Cook in multiple earnings calls. Those exact words in some cases. We will not leave a price umbrella for our competitors, right? He has said that to analysts and un unprompted in his own sort of declaration of what Apple's philosophy is, right? And we do not build to meet a price point. During the whole netbook era and all that other stuff, he would they keep asking, well, you got to have something cheaper. You got to say, look, Apple doesn't build to meet a price point. We build what we think is a good machine. But th the point of my tweet was those two, those two philosophies are in direct conflict. Which is it? Do you not leave a price umbrella for your competitors or do you not build to be in a price point? Uh, and, and after this presentation, I said, well, I guess we know which one won, huh? It's the we don't build to meet a price point. That, that one won. They said, look, we, you know, we're not building, we're not seeing what we can build for 200 bucks. We're going to build the product that we think we want to make, and we're going to see how much we can sell that for given our, our usual margins, right? And that's exactly what they did. Uh, so those two points have always been in conflict with Apple. Uh, and at various times, they have chosen different sides. Sometimes they do go with the cheaper price. Like, you know, we've all been surprised occasionally by how cheap something is in introduction. We all thought it would be more expensive. The iPad itself is a good example, right? Uh, but other times they, they go the other way. So Apple continues to be internally conflicted about this. Now, the question is, regardless of what you hoped, you hoped it was 199. It really would have changed the market if it was 199. It would have made it would have made Android tablet makers cry, bitter tears like all of that is true. Right. The, the, the question for a pragmatic perspective is, is it a mistake to sell it for a 329? Uh, and if you're judging it by like <sighs> business type metrics, the easy answer is that. Look, Apple's probably going to be supply constrained through the holiday season uh, or very close to being supply constrained through the holiday season because this is a new product using the A6, which is a new CPU, the A6X, but it's still the A6 core, you know, all that stuff. Uh, it's cheap enough that they're probably going to sell a lot of them. Would Apple be able to actually sell more iPads between now and the end of the year if it was 249 or 199 I think if it was 199 and these were the parts that were, you know, in, 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 oh, it's not the A6, sorry, it's the A5, the iShrunk A5. Uh, I think they might have trouble keeping up with demand if they made it 199 And p the demand is strong. Like, I think they are pricing to meet the demand. How many of these things can we make before the holiday season? Because it's a time window uh, as much as anything else. Like, you know, even if you don't have any trouble manufacturing this and all these parts you're an expert at making, you know, the iShrunk A5 as opposed to the A6. Sorry about the mistake. Uh you, have, you can only run the lines that like they produce a certain amount per day and there's only a certain number of shopping days left till Christmas or whatever your metric you want to use is. Uh, it could be that as many people said, if they hit priced it lower, they would just be leaving money on the table. But it's like, look, you would have sold that many no matter what. You're going to sell every single one of these things you can make between now and the end of the year. Uh, not no matter what you price them, because obviously they were 500 bucks like that wouldn't work out. Right. Or 600 or whatever, although they are the high end ones. Uh, that this starting price is just smart, good business. This is the, the intersection of supply and demand for the holiday season for this product. The second uh, good business theory about it is that, you know, eventually, like everything, this will go retina. Uh, and if history is a guide, they will leave the non-retina one around. Then you can sell the retina one for whatever the current, like, don't change the price. Like, oh, it's the same exact price as the old one was, but now it's retina. And the non-retina one suddenly becomes your cheap one, and then you hit your, your $200 things. Those all make sense to me. Uh, as reasons that they wouldn't want to price it lower. But, I, you know, people, 
people aren't rational, and unfortunately for Apple, neither is the stock market. And I think if you look at their stock, uh, now their earnings are a whole separate thing that I want to get into. But even before their earnings call, when the pricing for this was announced, if they had announced 199 pricing, I think they would have seen a stock bump. Because people were like, oh, you know, Apple has just crushed all its competitors because they're selling something that's obviously way better and more desirable for the same price as their competitors. How can their competitors compete with this? Uh, instead, they fielded something that is better and more desirable, but also more expensive. And I think the, you know, the, the markets didn't respond to that with unbridled enthusiasm. And then the earnings just you know, continue to hit it. Let's go look what their stock is now. How, how are they doing today? They're back into the 500s. They had passed 700 just mere weeks ago. So they're like a 593 now. That's mostly because of the earnings call. But, uh, you know, that doesn't make any rational sense. You're like, don't you understand? We're going to sell as many of these iPad minis as we can make. It would be dumb for us to sell it for 299 when we can sell it for 329 Right, guys? Right? And they're like, no, we really want to see you. Like, it, it's like they had the kill shot and they didn't take it. And they didn't take it because they want to preserve their margins. Um, and in the, in the earnings call, they had one. I haven't listened to the whole earnings call yet, but I went to the Q&A just to hear this myself because I heard people talking about it. They asked questions about margins. And at one point, they're like, look, you know, the iPad mini, like any of our new products, has lower margins than usual. Uh, we don't, you know, every time we have a brand new product, it starts out, the margins are lower. And then we, you know, try to get onto the cost curves and, and increase our margins as time goes on. So what they're saying is we're selling this for 329 and it has lower margins than usual. But then again, all their new products are like that. When the 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro comes out, it doesn't have a 40% margin out of the box. But, you know, a couple months, six months later, maybe it does. You know, Apple's margins are gigantic, right, on everything. I mean, just just try to buy a friggin' adapter for your <laughs> lightning-equipped iOS accessory, and you'll see they have big margins, right? Uh, and they're, they were not willing to give them up for this. Uh, they're not willing to, you know, sell it at cost like Amazon has admitted that they do. They want to make a profit on it, and they're not even willing to sell at cost for a little while to just crush the other competitors. Like, that's that's the strategy they've chosen not to do. It's price umbrella versus not build to a price point. And they said, we don't build to a price point. I guess they believe preserving their brand and the superiority of their product is better than really crushing the other guys. Or maybe they didn't think they would crush them. I don't know. But I think this was the wrong decision long-term, not short-term. Short-term, yeah, they're going to make all their money this holiday season at 329 It's good for them. But long-term, it would have been better to go in for the killing blow, kind of like they did with, with the iPods. Like, they were always price competitive on, on iPods in terms of storage and features. And they used their volumes and wrapping up all the flash supply and everything. Like, when the Nano first came out, they had bought up all that NAND and had that big contract. They use that to crush the competitors on price as well as features, as well as cachet, as well as ecosystem on all fronts. That's how you get 70% market share. I don't think they're going to have 70% market share of the 7 to 8-inch tablet market. And although Tim Cook may say, oh, 7-inch tablet, that's a whole other market. We're an 8-inch tablet. It's a whole different deal. You know, I I, I don't remember the last time I've seen someone listening to a digital music player that wasn't an iPod. But I see very frequently people using Kindle Fires People using, you know, maybe not so much the Android things, but I think they can, you know, I've seen regular non-nerd people using small, cheap tablets. Uh, and if Apple w- had been willing to go down there, somehow get down there and just shove those guys out, uh, you know, then that that would have. That, that's the time they should have grabbed for, you know, it's like the, the old Steve Jobs quote that people keep quoting. Oh, you know what Apple did wrong is so the marketing guy, the sales guys came in and they went for profits over market share. And that was a mistake. I mean, Steve Jobs has all sorts of self-contradictory things at various times in history. So chances are good that you can find a Steve Jobs quote that supports whatever your point of view is. But in this case, I'm picking that one because it supports my point of view. Uh, I think they should have gone uh, for market share. They should have gone uh, with price.
especially since this is we're just talking about the 16 gigabyte Wi-Fi point psychological because you know all the other ones fine go up in price range maybe make a bigger jump like get people to buy the 32s with the 4G like you're going to make your margins like just I wish I could just sit down and talk with Tim and say you're making the wrong move guy no it's not a catastrophic wrong move you know they'll be successful they'll sell all the ones they can make people say see if they'd gone cheaper they would have just lost 10 billion dollars it's true I just think long term uh, they're making a mistake. And I assume you agree because you just said too expensive. Too expensive. Now, I still bought one. Of course you did. Will you get a, a white one or a black one? Well, I wanted to get a white one. Uh, but there was a delay on the shipping. November 2nd is when they were supposed to arrive. And oh, apparently, unless you ordered very, very, very early, the white ones are on like at least right now, as as of the time of this recording, a two-week delay and yeah, the black just, ones are still shipping uh or, or arriving on the second so my first order i actually put it through uh for a white one and then said oh crap wait a minute that's two weeks out i want to be able to talk about this thing on the day they arrive so canceled it and ordered a black one and i believe even at the time of recording you can still get a black one right now and it'll show up on november 2nd which is a week from today right uh, I think so. Yeah. I, mean, I linked in the show notes to a story from uh, CNN that says uh, Apple's white iPad mini sells out in 20 minutes. Is that all of t- 20 minutes? Wow. <laughs> yeah. And so is it because they didn't make as many white ones? Is it because that's exactly my question problems with the white ones? Is it because people really we, we don't we don't want to believe it. It's because everyone wants the white one, because historically people have not wanted the white model of like you'd you'd go in to get your iPhone 3GS or or under the 3GS come in white now, whatever the four. Or the 4S, you're like, oh, sorry, all we got le- left are white 64 gigabyte iPhones. You're like, all right, fine, I'll take one. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, if you were unwise. Yeah, I, I wonder, but those are good questions. Is it because they thought, did they just make fewer white ones because they anticipated more people would want black ones? Did they make the same number and the white ones are more popular? Did they make more white ones and they still sold out of them faster? I mean, uh, Apple never reveals this kind of thing. Uh, crucial wax in the chat room is, is flip flopping uh, in his own position of what he thinks, and now uh, he, he's he's uh, persuaded by the theory that when they switch to Retina, then they'll finally hit the lower end, and then they can crush the other guys. I'm I'm saying you're leave, you've already left the door open for a long time by not even fielding a smaller model, right? Uh, and the longer you let that go, the more kind of people are like, oh, I like my Kindle Fire. I think I'll get the next one too. You know, maybe not so much with the Nexus Seven because it still seems like kind of a geek device, but the Kindle Fire and App and Amazon's explicitly stated strategy we will sell at cost we will break you you know like that's your competitor and people are buying those things and they're not as good as your product but people are buying them and you don't want people to get into like i just want the next kindle fire because i've got always get a kindle fire and i love kindle fire kindle fire kindle fire bad for apple that is bad you want people to only go with ipad and not go like well someday i can afford one. no i like my kindle fire it's great uh now is the time to strike uh, so so look <laughs> If you look at the, if you look at the pricing on these things, like the whole range of things, God, they really go up. Like the iPad Mini, three twenty nine, four twenty nine, five twenty nine for sixteen thirty two and sixty four gig Wi Fi only. If you look at the four G, four sixty nine, five fifty nine, six fifty nine, six fifty nine for an iPad Mini seems oh, seems high. Like yeah, I mean that. Yeah, I don't even know if you need to field the sixty four gig model of that, but you know, so that's quite a range just one model goes from 329 to 659 then the ipad 2 still hanging around still with the ugly 30 pin connector 399 529 two just two skews two possibilities wi-fi or 4g 
big gap between, you know, 130 buck gap between the Wi-Fi and 4G. I wonder, I would love to be in the meeting where they come up with that number. You know how much 4G costs? We've decided to cost 130 bucks. Why? Pfft, made up number. Like, that's not how much it actually costs costs. What, what are the, what's the margin on just the 4G markup? It's got to be big and getting bigger. Or maybe it shrinks again when they went to, four, went to you know, the 3G margin maybe started out as like, that's a 70% margin, and or that's a 50% margin, and then it went to 70, and then they, the 4G chipsets cost more, so now it's like a 50% margin again, and then it goes up to 70. That's quite an expensive upgrade. That's what I'm saying. They could have made all this money off from the, the people who have money who buy the more expensive models. And finally, the iPad with Retina display, the iPad 4, 499, 599, 699, 16, 32, 64 gig models, the 4G ones, 629, 729, 829. That seems, re- you know, it's, I'm not, it seems correct that your top of the line one would go stretch up into the 800s. It seems a little bit weird that your like entry level, get people in the door, cheaper model, it goes up to $659. And remember, this is before you buy the $50 or $70 cover, before you buy, you know, any other accessories that you want for this thing, your your lightning adapter for your car or your video, th- oh, just this, everything is so expensive. I, the margins of those accessories have to be great. What are you doing, Apple? You're, I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a disaster, but I am disappointed. Yeah. Uh, so to wrap this up, because this is now, I believe, the longest show I've ever done. 137 uh, minutes. I did not say this would be a short show because I knew it would not be. And you I should cut, have, and that would. And, and I really cut that follow-up to really short. Anyway, the meta point on all this thing is, I think I've talked about this on past shows when there have been hardware announcements, but it's just it's so clear after this presentation because they had so much hardware. Pretty much all of Apple's hardware is in transition. Uh, the operating system, I believe, is also in transition. That was a big point on outline review, but their hardware is just so in transition. It's like, it's like adolescence, but you have to go through it multiple times because they don't ever become an adult. Like progress marches on. It's that awkward stage. It's in transition to Retina. Every single product line they have is in some sort of in betweeny stage where, like, we'd love everyone to have Retina because we think it's awesome, but it's really expensive and it takes battery and we can't, you know. It's in transition to Retina. It's in transition away from optical drives. That is pretty clear. Ditch them as soon as we can, but oh, keep those ones around because someone needs them, but it's a transition, right? It's in transition two lightning connectors from the 30 pin. That's a pretty clean sweep too, but the iPad 2 hangs around and there's a million other accessories and it's, you know, it's this awkward stage and you don't know what kind of accessories you're going to get and it's just a big mess. In transition to Thunderbolt away from Firewire. Also pretty clean, but uh, Firewire port's still hanging around in the Mac Mini. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's in between. In, in transition to solid state storage. We'd like to go SSD everywhere, but storage it doesn't catch up. And, you know, they have three terabytes spinning disks now, and they're really cheap. So we'll do this fusion drive thing. And this transitional phase, all these hardware transitions, this is going to last a while. It's already gone on for like a year or two, and it's going to keep going on. We all want them to fast forward to the sleek, magical, futuristic things. Everything has a lightning connector. No one remembers any interconnect besides uh, uh, Thunderbolt and uh, USB. And then USB increasingly looks like the parallel port sticking on the side of these machines, you know, and every other port is getting smaller and uh, and nicer, and USB remains gigantic. Uh, we all want them to all have retina displays, so we can't quite get there. We all want a new Mac Pro, right? All of us? Anybody? <laughs> I want a new Mac Pro. <laughs> all Apple's hardware line, like, in, in, in historically, sometimes you'd look at Apple hardware line, and they could put up, like, a diagram or a poster or a slide, and it would be like, damn, they have their house in order. They've got awesome products at every price point. It looks like a family resemblance. It's clear what you want. You want this one, that one. You know, they, they did the original Quadrant Consumer Pro portable laptop. Like, now it's complicated by iOS and the phone and everything and, and the iPad and all that. But they, at various points, they've had a clean line. You look across it and say, this makes sense to me. I see what you're doing here. You have an awesome lineup of computers. 
all of them are great. You rev them on a regular schedule. They get better. They get cheaper. And there's no weird trade-offs. And now it's like, no, adolescent zits are everywhere. And, you know, I've got <laughs> hair in new places. And my voice is cracking. And I don't know what's going on. And I'm sweaty. And I'm nervous about girls. And, like, their entire <laughs> line is just weird looking. Any slide you put up there is like, you got to explain, well, this has a retina display. Well, what's that? And why is it? Why doesn't this one have that? And why can't it get this with retina? And this one has a spinning disc. And that's just, it's, it's confusing. It's awkward. It's, I, you know... Like adolescents, you just got to get through it, you know, and hopefully they'll come out the other side. And just like adolescents, we all know what's on the other side. We know what adulthood looks like, you know, you become more mature, you get a real job, you get out of school, like you become an adult, you become responsible for yourself. You stop using your parents, you know, gas card at the gas station, you buy your own car, you get your own job, you know, like, that's adulthood. And we see what adulthood is for Apple's hardware product lines. We just, you can picture it in your head right now. You can mock them up. You can give them to an artist. You know what they're all going to be. All SSD, all retina, uh, you know, all legacy ports gone. Uh, maybe maybe no Mac Pro. Like We know what adulthood looks like, but it's just taking so long to get there. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm kind of uncomfortable in this awkward stage. Uh, I'm uncomfortable for Apple. It's, it's uncomfortable for everyone involved. But uh, like like adulthood, you just have to go through it to get there, and you know, just be glad we're not shipping uh, computers with a single PS2 port that's uh, colored half pastel green, half pastel purple. You know, so those days are behind us now. It could be worse, but we we're still we're still struggling through this phase, and this presentation more than any other just emphasized <laughs> what an adolescent awkward phase we're in here. Uh, but we'll get through it, I guess. We'll get through it together. Friends helping friends. Live together, die alone, Dan. Yeah, oh, I know. Don't talk to me about the last two seasons, though. All right. I think I'm done. All right, so you can follow John uh, as Syracusa, S-I-R-A-C-U-S-A. There is no Z in Syracusa. He is on Twitter. He is on alpha.app.net. He is on Tentis by the name Syracusa. And... um did you do a new blog post somewhere this week? Oh, yeah. I didn't even have time to well, Let's pimp it. Pimp it I out. Put it in the show blog notes. post, but issue two of the magazine, Marco Armand's oh, that's right. That's where it was. Sorry. Yeah. Newsstand publication in iOS features a story by yours truly about, can you guess? Yes, that's right. More. If you haven't heard <laughs> enough from me about the video game journey for the PlayStation 3, not the band. Here it I is. I wrote more about it. Here it is. And I would recommend that you do not read this article if you haven't played the game. You may have heard that from me before as well. The title, uh, the title of the article, as, as I see it, has appeared here magically in the magazine for me. Strange Game. Journey's what, lessons can apply to all of human endeavor. Uh, Marco picked the subtitle. I, I should have picked the subtitle uh, for him, but I didn't. Looking forward to reading this. And by the way, for the record, I, I have not played the game, and I will be reading this. Yeah, well, you shouldn't. You really, really should. If you want to, if you want to set me up with what is what is this on PlayStation? PlayStation Three. Set me up with a somebody. borrow one. Yeah, borrow one. Like that's the way you get it. You're like, I don't want to buy a PlayStation Three. Like we'll borrow, borrow a console one. from someone. Yeah, like Jason Snell borrowed one, so we had the incomparable episode about it. Uh, yeah, but he's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Anyway, uh, there you go. I suspect that I will be writing more for the magazine sometime in the future, but I have no idea about what. So, uh, I'm sure you'll talk to Marco about the magazine 
and issue number two and its progress, but I am happy to be in it, proud to be in it, and uh, got a lot of positive feedback from the article I wrote, so thanks to everyone who... All right, so that's another me. place you can see John Syracuse's stuff is in the magazine. And um, I'm Dan on the alpha.app.net, Dan Benjamin on uh, Twitter and Tentus. And if you would like to see all the show notes and uh, links that go with this episode, you can go to 5x5.tv slash hypercritical slash 91. You can also subscribe to the RSS feed in your favorite RSS feed reader, and you'll get all those links right there in line, uh, independent of downloading the episode. So we appreciate all of that. Appreciate you listening, checking out the sponsors, and uh, appreciate John doing all that you do. So have a really good week, John and listeners, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.